Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of There's Always Another Podcast, the Halt and Catch Fire podcast of the Real World Podcasting Network. My name is Kevin. I am one of the hosts, and I am enjoying Halt and Catch Fire for the very first time. And with me is the other host, Jerome Cusan, who is making his way through the series yet again, perhaps this time with a more fine-tooth comb. Jerome, how are you doing this day? I am uh, I'm doing very well, Kevin. And all I could say is, uh, just to take people a little bit behind the curtain, uh, when I send Kevin notes, there's a lot of bullet points. Some of it is incoherent. Uh, but the way that Kevin formats his notes for the episodes, you could put this on Wikipedia right now. I'm going to take that as a compliment. Go for it. Take it as a compliment, if you will. So the good news is, is that there are mostly the same primary characters this season as season one. So we don't have to do a deep dive and reminder of characters or all that other stuff. If that's what you want, I suggest you go and listen to our first episode of this podcast. But Jerome, you mentioned that you did want to touch upon a couple of the newer characters from the season. First, we're getting into it, especially a character that you and I agreed it was a, a bit of an issue with season two of Halt and Catch Fire. Yeah, I think that the the first character that we do need to talk about is Sarah. And it's worth noting that there was there were almost no additions uh, to the opening credits and who was who got like in the opening credits because that that does make a difference uh the only person that was added uh was alexa paladino and she plays the character of sarah and she is the girlfriend slash fiance slash wife slash ex-wife all four of those things are true in this season alone and uh she is uh she is with joe and I think that the reason that I wanted to talk about her first is to just kind of get her out of the way because even though she is in the opening credits, and it seems like she is going to be an important character. Uh, quite frankly, she is not an important character. Almost all of her scenes are with Joe. I think part of it is a writing problem because we really don't we really don't get to see Sarah outside of just the conversations with Joe. She doesn't really have a lot of personality, so I think part of it is also a casting issue as well, because even though some of the characters who are in the house, the working for mutiny, I feel like those people are much more well-defined in a way than, than Sarah. And I think that that is a fundamental issue because it really makes the stuff with Sarah and Joe drag. And there definitely came a point late in the season when Sarah was talking about writing a book. And I remember thinking to myself, you could not pay me all the money in the world to read this book. Like, I could not possibly care any less about this book. It's almost like a weird self-fulfilling prophecy with Sarah in the season because they really just needed some girl, any girl, doesn't matter what girl, to be Joe's girlfriend, fiance, wife, ex-wife, who just so happens to be the daughter of someone who works in the tech industry and is a millionaire, billionaire, what have you. And so the rest of that character doesn't really matter. And it feels like they felt that way about the character and wrote her as such. Because like you said, doesn't really get any scenes without Joe in them. They have the the loosest of backstory to her that's pretty much laid out in the first episode not very well filled in and they don't really touch on it much more at all in the rest of the series. And then by the end of the the season, she's gone. So you really just needed a body to be in that place to be 
Joe's other person in his life. And that's all they needed. She was a means to an end and they treated her as such. And it's definitely the weakest point of season two for me. You know, and I think a part, another part of the problem is that with prestige shows in general, you seem to have this problem with the wives and the girlfriends of some of the characters that they end up in this kind of role. One of the things that I give tremendous credit to is this show kind of refocuses around Donna and Cameron. So it's very bizarre to me that they put all this effort into really crafting the show in a completely different way with kind of a new concept. And basically the show kind of spins off into itself and becomes more about the female characters and the male characters. But then you still have this issue of Sarah. So it's just a really interesting conundrum. I don't think it affects my enjoyment of season two that much, but it definitely does have somewhat of an effect. I agree. The fact that they have two such incredibly strong female leads helps a lot in making the Sarah problem a lesser issue. It doesn't give it a pass, but it's not like it's this systemic issue with the show in general. It just so happens to be one character that, that, and and admittedly Joe casts a very large shadow over the show in and of itself. So I don't know. It feels like it was a deliberate choice to sort of undermine whoever Joe was going to be with in the show and it shows uh, and it makes me not really care about that character. It makes me not invested at all in that relationship. There's a lot of new budding relationships in the season that I do care a lot about. And there's our already established relationships that go through trials and tribulations that I also feel deeply about. And when it comes to Sarah and Joe, it is just feels passionless, phony, uninteresting And it sticks out like a sore thumb because there are, like you said, other stronger female characters and other stronger relationships in the show. And I think the nice thing about us covering it here is that when we do talk about the Joe and Sarah stuff here, we can more focus on the Joe side of the story, which, let's face it, that's what it's all about anyways. Yeah, and I think that you and I both have had some issues with Joe as well. And I know that on this rewatch, my tolerance for Joe's bullshit is much lower And I think this is a byproduct of just I've seen this trope of this character done so many times and in some cases better, in some cases worse. But I'm just I'm just tired of this, the complicated, mediocre white man trope. And that is exactly what Joe is. Joe is not even Don Draper. Joe is not even Walter White. Like that's and that's the thing is that I think the show kind of understands that Gordon is kind of a loser in some cases, but I don't think they quite know what to do with Joe. And we'll get into that as well. The one thing I will say is I I do think season two is better, even though we're kind of starting out on a negative note. I really want to emphasize that for the most part, I really enjoy the, the act of watching the show because it's 10 episodes. Every episode except the finale is 42 minutes and 54 seconds. And it just makes for a really easy watch. Every episode, there is tons of stuff that's happening. Like every episode, like it's it's there's a lot to chew on with each one. Like if we wanted to, if Kevin and I wanted to, we could probably do this podcast weekly and just cover every episode in like 30 minutes. And I think that we could do that and it would still be an enjoyable listen. That is not how we do this show, but I think that that's the thing that I really like is just 
there's so many prestige dramas that feel like they have to go 59 minutes. Like every episode is 59 minutes and it's a miserable experience because um, it's like the TV. So there's this, there's the joke about the zoom meeting that could be done in an email. I'm sure you've heard that before. Of course. Yes. Uh, there, there are some dramas where the 59 minute episode probably should have been 15 or 30 minutes at best. Um, so I really appreciate the fact that every every episode something is going on. We learn something about the characters, and that's that's the thing that I appreciate. And their episodes as well. That there is a there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to the episodes. I do love though. We're going from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Well, if they wanted 15 extra minutes, by God, they were getting those 50 15 extra minutes. And then I see the finale of. Halt and Catch Fire is like maybe three minutes heavier than the others. And I just imagine them begging and pleading AMC like, please just give us three minutes. Come on, man. We need these three minutes. It just shows a fun difference in those shows. I think one of them can call the shots and the others uh, stay within their time, more or less. Absolutely. But, you know, I think sometimes when you are when you are boxed into like having to do 42 minutes of 54 seconds, you're going to tell your story a hell of a lot faster. And if you know you might be canceled, you're going to you're going to throw everything at the wall in some cases, and it might actually ultimately be better. So maybe the show was better for the fact that they had these restrictions and they could not, you know, elaborate on the Joe and Sarah relationship more. And they could they really just had to get to the point. I think in some cases that's a good thing. And I think that's why broadcast comedies like a show like Brooklyn Nine-Nine or The Good Place, like those shows can still work because in some cases, I think comedies are better for that length and for that amount of time. And even a show like WandaVision, like I sit down and watch WandaVision. It's a 30 minute episode and it works perfectly. 30 minutes is perfect for that show. And that's that's something that I really like when shows understand what they are and how long their episodes need to be. 43 minutes for this show, every episode is perfect. Well, you talk about shows getting canceled. I think there's a lot of characters in this show that would be canceled in 2021, am I right? There's one scene that we did not talk about in season one that I would say is pretty important, and that was the uh, the one at the strip club uh, where somebody calls Joe gay. And that is, uh, I we didn't talk about it. I don't know whether it was because I subconsciously wanted to forget it. It's probably one of the worst it's probably one of the worst scenes in the first season, but there are definitely a lot of cancelable people. I think you can just about cancel everyone. <laughs> yeah, probably. Show. I mean, there's ageism. There's a point when uh, when Donna gets called Mrs. Garrett in the first episode. That is uh, that that might get you fired. Definitely. Yeah. Different times, man. Different times. So, are we ready to to finally dive into some episodes of season two? Yes, and uh, it's really interesting that we did not have a flashback in all of season one, and then season two starts out with a 30-second flashback. Yeah, and it's it's a little bit of a fake-out, I think, too, because you don't know for sure it's a flashback at the time. It's with Joe and Cameron at Cameron's house. They're really happy. They still seem to be together. Joe's leaving for work, and then it quickly transitions into March of 1985, 20 months later from where we left season one. I think I realized it was sort of a flashback as it was going on, but I thought it was interesting to show us that glimpse of happier times with Joe and Cameron's life before getting to the now and the chaos of both of their lives. Very different chaos, mind you, but a very different place for these characters. So having that little gentle reminder at the beginning of season two, I didn't mind whatsoever. 
I love the fact that a show that is all about the future and moving forward does not use a lot of flashbacks. And the one time that they did, the flashback was within the context of the show already because Joe mentions uh, going to Comdex. So I love the fact that they just have this very brief reminder and they get right into the current storyline. Exactly. And right now the current storyline is Mutiny, the company that Cameron founded at the end of season one that Donna decided to join. It's really burgeoned into this big operation and it's completely outgrown its sort of home operation here. There's just programmers goofing off but also trying to handle issues of bandwidth or lag or outages or what have you and they're really over capacity to the point where they end up putting out the power to their entire block just when they turn on a a console video game and you see Cameron and Donna are sort of at odds here because Donna is Cameron has this idea of mutiny being this bossless everybody's on the same level organization but the reality is is you need somebody to anchor the thing and that's really what donna is cameron's taking a lot of liberties with some solutions like stealing the neighbor's electricity and donna's being fed up about having to kind of be the boss in this bossless environment and they do end up making good but they also go off together to buy some hardware from this person cameron knows that turns out to be counterfeit and the good thing about this relationship is donna feels totally okay being open and honest with camera at this point and basically tells her that the company's plateaued and they either need to grow and expand or they're going to crater. And this is when they kind of propose sharing some of their managerial duties so that Donna will help grow their user base and their community uh, because it'll free up some of her time to do this. If some of these other quote unquote, bossly motherly duties, what have you were taken off of her plate. And then you get a fun thing at the end where the counterfender end up, ends up coming to the bar They confront him, Cameron gets his keys, and they steal two IBM computers. So I think really in in episode one, you're getting a really clear visual of what's going on in Mutiny right now. I love that the first episode so heavily focuses on the relationship between Cameron and Donna because we got a couple of moments throughout the first season, but they really established that this is going to be the primary focus of season two. I think it is really admirable that the writers and the producers basically looked at the first season. And I th- it's the, the, the impression that comes to me is that they were very honest about what was working and what wasn't. And I think that what they discovered is that this Donna-Cameron relationship might actually be the most interesting of all the potential pairings and all the different ways that they could go. And I am so glad that they went in this way because I think Prestige TV very rarely shows – female co-workers like this where they're not they're not sniping in each other they're not necessarily competitive with each other but there is a uh, there is a friendship there to an extent but there is also some conflict but the conflict doesn't feel like oh women be shopping like stuff like that like garbage like that it feels much more organic and it feels much much better like it's in a much better place and i love the fact that in the end like even though they're not happy with the counterfeiter like in the end like it basically turns into a heist movie for the final few minutes of the episode and they steal the materials that they need to uh the the the, the hardware and they basically drive off and leave the counterfeiter uh, with his pants hanging down. I love that that's how the episode ends, and I love that that's the way that they're exploring this relationship because, again, this isn't something that you see on a lot of television shows. You don't see shows about female coworkers 
in this way. And if they do, if it's on a show like Man Men, it is very much in terms of, well, they're working for the men and they're complaining about the men. But that's not what this is about. And I really like that. And I also love the fact that, yes, Mutiny is a bit of a frat house and it definitely has a, a, a lot of male energy. But I love the fact that the guys are okay with working for Cameron and Donna. Like they don't resort to that storyline of, oh, they're they're not happy because they're working for girls. And uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, as do I. It, it never comes up ever. Like you, I didn't even think about that once during the entire show until you mentioned that now that could have been something they chose to do. But it would have felt so off for like the tone of the show entirely. And I just don't see – any of those engineers or programmers bringing that up. So not only am I glad they didn't do it, but I think it speaks to the show that like, had they even approached that, it would have felt totally off the vibe of what the show is going for, which is a strength to the show. I think the next character we'll discuss here is Gordon. I love, they show this super cheesy commercial for the giant computer that was built in season one using this Jack and the Beanstalk motif. And it's shown as Gordon's on this talk show. And we learn that Cardiff has been acquired by a larger company. If there's the giant was the first of two successful computers that were created and Gordon decides he's not transitioning with the sale and is planning to start his own investment firm out of his garage. But what you get now is that you get a complete role reversal with Donna and Gordon from season one into season two is now Donna's the one scrambling to go to work in the morning. Who's kind of putting family second to her job while Gordon's at home making breakfast, making sure she's got her coffee and stuff where it's off, make sure the kids are okay, all these things while he's working at home with his garage. Uh, So I like that role reversal too that you're seeing between Donna and Gordon. As we'll learn, uh, Gordon's going to have the money to kind of do what he wants. And because they have that money, Donna can kind of do what she wants. And so it is interesting to see uh, this happen sometimes in shows where just like if you're able to take money off the table like that, it allows you to be a bit more creative and gives your characters more freedom and it gives them the freedom to have this role reversal here where Donna can go with this ambitious thing with mutiny. And if they don't take home a check, it's fine. And Gordon can pursue his new thing and he doesn't have to depend on money of other people like, uh, like Donna's parents or what have you. Uh, so it's nice to see that, but this is, uh, it's interesting to see Gordon in this, in this role going from working for Cardiff and to now just being a stay-at-home dad who works on his own side project. And it's something that they really review over the entire season. You know, this is not something where they just do this for one episode, but this idea of Gordon's the one that's getting the kids ready, it actually goes over the entire season, and it kind of has a nice payoff when they get to episode 10. So that's something that I really appreciated as well, is that they are going with this all the way, and it is a fundamental way of changing the dynamics of the season. And like they basically close all old business in this first episode by, by having the, uh, the scene where they go into uh, the, uh, to get their money. And it's a, it's a great scene. It's probably one of my, one of my favorite scenes of the entire season is that, you know, one at a time, everybody's getting called in to get their, to get their cut and, you know, the Gordon one goes really well because, you know, he made Nathan, the owner of Cardiff, a lot of money. And then you get into the Joe scene and it's uh, it's pretty 
it is pretty great. So uh, the Gordon stuff is is really interesting this season because they really take this character in a very different direction that I think you've seen from prior characters like this. And I always go with the uh, with the dynamic of Gordon is he's not he's definitely not a one for one for Walter White, but I think he definitely gives off those vibes. And I think undoubtedly part of it is that I just watched Breaking Bad. So I, I do see a relationship between those characters. And in some cases it's parallel and some cases it's definitely a little bit off because Gordon is not a terrible person. But I just I really liked what they did with Gordon and the fact that there are like the, the thing that I like is that he is just competent enough to get this money and to do to to do a really good job for Cardiff. But he, there is there is something holding him back. And part of it may be his diagnosis. Part of it is, you know, what's going on with him psychologically. But Gordon has a lot of nuance and. It's something that I'm really glad that they figured out basically between seasons one and two. It feels like they really cracked the Gordon character. I wish that they had figured out Joe nearly as well. Well, one other thing about Gordon that happens here is that uh, after he gets his check and he, he takes out the girls to get ice cream to celebrate, which Donna, of course, misses because she's busy working and Gordon, his nose begins to bleed. And you're like, what's up with that? Is it stress? Is it something else? We'll get to that later. But obviously, this is kind of the first sign of like something's something's up with Gordon, uh, and we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. And Gordon also himself has some doubts about if the sale was a good thing or not, which I think is normal. And Donna reminds him, "Well, no, it wasn't really up to you. So uh, no mental masturbation there. It's, it's something you had no control over. So nothing really to worth keep thinking about." But for Joe, he's now in Austin, Texas, dating Sarah at this time. Learned that they were former classmates who reconnected. Seems like she has some sort of past, too, that she's looking to fix up, like, I guess, a divorce or some other things. Uh, both, it seems like her and Joe are two people who want to move forward with their lives. Fresh starts. That's what this is all about. But Joe has a, a meeting to go to Dallas to pick up his share of the Carter sale, and he's planning to use that money to start his own company in Silicon Valley. This is where Gordon and Joe run into each other uh, for the first time in a long time. It, it's tense, but they they loosen up a bit as the small talk turns into not so small talk. Gordon gets his big check for eight hundred and thirty eight thousand dollars in change. Joe's cut is for six hundred and five thousand dollars in change. But a very angry Nathan rips up the check in his face, spews to Joe all of his frustrations with his actions for getting his friend sent to jail and his check is also lower than Gordon's because they need to take a cut of the money out of the the giant computers that he set on fire at the end of season one. So this leaves Joe empty handed plans in disarray as he was counting on this money to start his business. And he goes back to Austin. And despite the fact that he's empty handed and mad, he proposes to Sarah and she accepts. Woo hoo. I mean, they say that Joe has changed, but I don't. The problem is I just don't buy that he ever did during this season. Like there isn't a single moment when I don't believe that Joe is full of crap. And I think that fundamentally is the problem with this storyline. Like I love the fact that Nathan rips him a new one. He absolutely deserves it. Like Nathan is in the right. And even though he is kind of not one of the main characters, the fact that he yells at Joe rips the ke- rips the check right in, right in his face. It's a, it's a really great moment. And Again, I th- I don't think the problem is with Lee Pace. I think Lee Pace is doing the best he can with his performance. But 
Like, there are definitely times when the Joe storyline is going on. Not necessarily in this episode, but as we kind of go along, where I'm like, eh, Joe is just kind of there. Like, I like when he interacts with Gordon, because I think those two just, the way that they banter, the way they bounce off each other, I think it works out really well. But then there are times when, especially the Joe-Sarah scenes, where it's just like, can can we move it along? Let's, Let's move along. Nothing to see here. Let's just move on to the next thing. And uh, I was definitely feeling that, but uh, the, the like I said, the the Joe in the uh, in the the scene with Nathan probably one of my favorite of the season. I think I like the Joe story arc better than you do. Well, we can talk about this later. I mean, taking Sarah aside from what what's going on with Joe and his life and his interactions with other people, I I like where it goes, and we can and I you kind of hit it on the head, I think, without even realizing it. But we will get there when we get there. The last thing in episode one to note is that it ends with Cameron picking up Bosworth from prison as he is being released. So we have Bosworth back in the picture. That's something always worth celebrating. Uh, I would like to know what Bosworth's role was in the prison, because I feel like Bosworth is the type of person who he would walk in and they would let like everybody else would just be staring at him and they would wonder what the hell this guy's doing there. And by the end of his run, he's just running the prison, like even more than the warden. That's what I feel Boz is doing in prison. Probably. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Toby Huss is great. And I will, I will have no besmirching of him. Not that you would Kevin, but there is no besmirching of Toby Huss on this podcast. You know, like I, I had you watch the Kim Wexler training videos as like a, cute little digital show that they did between like seasons four and five of better call Saul. I feel like a digital mini series of Bosworth in prison would have been a really great way to bridge the gap between season one and two, but that's me armchair producing over here. Yeah. Uh, or more fake commercials. I wonder if better call, uh, I wonder if halting catch fire used the same company as uh, breaking bad to make their fake commercials because they are, they are the absolute highlight of all these shows. Yeah. They're pretty great. Uh, and in other shows, too. Episode two is called New Coke, which is a great double entendre because New Coke was introduced in April of 1985. We don't have to go over the whole saga of New Coke. If you know it, you know it. If you don't, go look it up on Wikipedia. But we see Joe and Sarah meeting up with her father, Jacob, who is the CEO of West Group Energy. And he's well aware of Joe's employment past and that it may be difficult for him to find work because of it. So he offers him a job, but Joe turns it down. But he has some second thoughts, and there's this conversation with Sarah that's like a what-if conversation, and she gives him the A-OK to go ahead and accept the position with uh, West Group Energy after all. But unbeknownst to Joe, it's an entry-level data entry position, and obviously this throws Joe way off guard. And Sarah tells Joe that her father was new Peter from, from Cardiff, and this employment may be a measure of revenge on Jacob's part, but – Joe decides to go with the cliche of, you know, eat shit and like it or never show your poker face and decides he's going to suck it up. See what happens in this position. And he even sends Jacob a waffle iron with a note that just says thanks for the opportunity. So that's I think that's very much a Joe thing to do is just uh, not 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 quit. Don't say die. Just work in that position and uh, see what happens and show her father that he's not going to let it get to him. Lee Pace is great in this, in all of the scenes, just the look of horror on his face as he walks into the basement and realizes slowly uh, what is happening to him. And uh, I think we need to spend at least a little bit of time on Eugene. Uh, Eugene is his, his boss in this position. Uh, Eugene gives, he gives off some Gil 
from the Simpsons energy. I don't know if you got that vibe, Kevin, but I definitely did. Uh, Eugene has basically – he's basically the cliche middle manager that nobody likes. That's that's how it comes across to me. Like the type of person who, when he was in like eighth grade, was a hall monitor. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, that sounds about right. He seems like a boss who oh, he wants to be the boss type. He wants to kind of lay down the law, but he is so he, he he has that real pushover energy where it's hard to take him seriously in that role. Yes, I just love the casting here. It's just it's perfect casting for Eugene because we know that Joe's going to gobble him up and spit him out, and that's basically what he ultimately ends up doing. But uh, Jacob Wheeler is played by the fantastic James Cromwell, uh, legendary actor, television, movies. I guess I would say, like, Ed Begley Jr. He's a more famous Ed Begley Jr. because James Cromwell definitely has much more of a uh, a sustained movie career, even has an Academy Award. But uh, James Cromwell is a great foil for Joe. And even if some of the storyline stuff doesn't totally work, uh, their interactions are very good, and James Cromwell uh, gives off the energy. James Cromwell is the type of person who can who just has a tremendous range like he can be the sensitive type he can also be a tremendous asshole but just he has a very calming energy about him and i think to play off of joe that's what you need and i think they were kind of going with the same thing for sarah and it just didn't work with that casting but i think the way that they casted jacob wheeler was very good you're just a really big spider-man 3 fan we didn't no, we don't talk about that movie ever. Uh, can someone find a Pantheon episode about that or is it not even worth discussing? It is. Uh, there is a Pantheon episode about it and you can find it on the Enter the Real World podcasting network. I don't I don't remember much about that episode except to say uh, that movie is not good. Well, you know what else is remarkable and also worrisome is the casualness with Gordon and how he does coke in his garage getting ready for work. And when we say coke, we mean cocaine. Yes, we do mean cocaine and vials. Like he is. This is not. This is not just like a, a casual thing, or, or or it's it's so alarmingly casual that he just has it in vials hanging out and he's doing drugs. Uh, so he's in his garage. He plays a tank battle, one of Mutiny's games, and gets super into it. Even plays it with Stan, who's a former colleague of his. Uh, and as they're playing it, Gordon discovers a glitch in the game. He actually goes over to Mutiny HQ to inform them of it. And uh, decides he's going to help to fix it. And Gordon thinks that perhaps he and Stan should work on something together. But Stan has decided to go to Northern California to search for work instead. So Gordon's given it a shot at home. But it seems like a lot of people are heading to the Californian Silicon Valley for for work. And Gordon's uh, left alone. You get you get this sense of like community versus isolation is a big overarching theme here. And. The sense of Gordon's isolation is he's trying to hold on to these colleagues from from West Group and one by one or not West Group from um, Cardiff. And one by one, they're all kind of moving on to not even necessarily greener pastures, but just different directions. Yeah, and I think it's it's a little bit depressing. Uh, there's there is some jealousy based on the fact that Gordon got all of this money and basically everybody else got to be unemployed and. There's obviously some tension there, and I think Gordon is feeling it, and that's one of the reasons uh, that he's doing cocaine. I think his cocaine usage is almost out of the fact that he's bored at this point. Like, it seems like he was doing it before because he needed to be productive, but now he's just bored in his garage, and he doesn't really have a whole lot to do. So we we do get uh, him on cocaine. 
something else that I appreciate about the show, we talk about, you know, the stereotypes. I love the fact that when he does cocaine, it doesn't become like this funny, like, oh boy, he's on cocaine. He's acting all wacky. Like he literally just sits down and is playing a video game. And based on his cocaine binge, he is just more productive of a human being, or at least is giving the veneer of being more productive. So uh, that's something that I really liked as well, that that Gordon is not this cliche cocaine user who's just partying in a club and all that jazz. So uh, I really like that. No, and you, and you you basically get the idea that it's something that he and a lot of the programmers did uh, when they were working on the giant and probably the second computer too. And it's carried over into his personal life working from home. Well, maybe his other coworkers have kicked the habit. Um, and, uh, I want to, I just want to say, Kevin, one of my favorite Robin Williams quotes of all time is Robin Williams once said, cocaine is God's way of telling you, you have too much money. <laughs> That's a great joke. Uh, and I, I, I do appreciate it. It's like Gordon, like having your morning coffee to maybe give you a little energy or kick to start your day. Eh, why not go with cocaine? Donna, on the other hand, is not super thrilled when Bosworth shows up saying he's the newest employee of Mutiny. For one, they're trying to get more funding and hiring an ex-con is maybe bad optics. You know, we can say what we want about Bosworth, how much you love him, but I do think she has a point. But Cameron stands firm in her decision to bring Bosworth on board. Uh, Donna also has created this new chat feature called Community, which doesn't impress Cameron whatsoever. Uh, they attend this very sexist investor meeting, which does not go great. And this is really the first time you're kind of seeing this sexism come to light because you have him asking questions of, well, do you ha- plan to have kids or do you have kids? Questions you never ask a male person who was trying to get an investment in this company. So while you don't see those challenges when they're at work, you do see these challenges in the real world, which I think is very uh, – which is a very accurate uh, depiction of the time. Yes, I very much appreciated this. I'm not saying the show couldn't have any sexism, but I like that it is just kind of addressed here in a way, and I think it makes uh, a lot of sense. I like that they that they do it in a common sense way that doesn't insult uh, their viewers' intelligence. So uh, that was very good, and yeah, that meeting. And I love the fact that they bring that 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 group back uh, in the last episode too. Yeah, the return the return of that I was not expecting, it, but I'm really glad they did. What's going on even worse, though, for Mutiny right now is one of their users, Tom, has cloned their most popular game, Parallax, and is distributing it for free. They end up finding and defrauding Tom, who offers a male culpa, but it's very obvious he's pretty arrogant. But Cameron is still impressed with some of the coding he did in the hacking to their system and realizes that, hey, Tom's a fan. Like, he's one of our top users, genuinely seems to have good ideas for this games, so maybe we should offer him work. And once again, Donna's not happy that she's made a personnel decision behind her back. But Donna also reveals that she's been looking into Tom's history and stuff. So she had the same idea, too, but also makes it clear to Cameron that, you know, if there's any more of these choices made without my consultation, I'm leaving mutiny. But the biggest thing that Tom brings into the to mutiny is that he's a, able to allow for multiple mutiny users to be on one phone line. And this gets the wheels in Gorn's head spinning and, uh, New Coke ends with him throwing a vial of Coke into the trash and gets to work. So I guess Gordon just needed the – I think your point of him maybe being bored and doing Coke is is accurate because now he has a focus. He has something to work on and uh, throws in the trash. Doesn't need any more. 
Yeah, I, I love the the addition of Tom. I think this is a very good addition uh, to the cast because obviously he can have a relationship with Cameron. He is a coder, so they they have that in common. He is kind of a hacker, and I think he represents some of the rebellious spirit uh, that Cameron represents. But uh, they 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 talk about uh, you know Cameron not being impressed by the chat feature community. And Kevin, I have to be honest that I really wanted a community Halt and Catch Fire crossover after watching this episode, and I'm disappointed that we will get that we will never get it. Can you imagine Joe and Joe McHale's character from Community in the same room? The amount of smugness going on there. Oh my gosh i I'm glad I'm sitting down because I feel like I'm getting a little dizzy just thinking about it. And I mean, Alison Brie in the 1980s. I mean, I mean, that's not a good idea, though, right? Just putting Alison Brie in a show about the 1980s never works. If you put her in a show in the 80s, it would just get canceled after three seasons due to pandemic and not needing an ensemble cast. I think it's I think it's tremendously ironic that Alison Brie was in a show like Community that was constantly in worry of being canceled. And they actually did get the six seasons. And there's probably going to be a movie at some point. But the show that like has all this critical acclaim, has won Emmys, gets canceled early. I think if if Donald Glover gets on board, you'll get that movie. But he would he's gonna be the most challenging one to get back, I think. Yeah. I mean even if he, just for a cameo. Yeah, that's I think that's the trick. I mean, they could pretty much just leave Chevy Chase behind. Right. Because speaking of cocaine, Chevy Chase. Um, there, you, there you go. But yeah. But yeah, uh I, I also, there's a, there's some Boz, Boz hazing stuff that goes on. One of the things that happens is uh, there's a prison rape joke in this episode that is very not kosher at all. Not kosher at all. Like you said, ageism talk from the other employees of Mutiny on Bosworth, who kind of feels like the, the old square right now. And one of them takes it way too far because he finds a letter Bosworth sent Cameron from prison. And we actually even learned from the letter that Cameron's real name is Catherine and that Cameron was her father's name that she adopted for herself. It ends up that Bosworth decides to resign from mutiny, just saying doesn't think it's the best place for him right now. And he needs an unknown amount of alone time. The relationship between Cameron and Bosworth is something I'm really happy carried over from season one that we've gotten fleshed out in season two, for sure. One of my favorite things to watch go down. Yeah, the moment of reading the uh, the letter is very awkward, but we do get some insight and we understand that there is a closeness between these two, that that the Boz is a surrogate father for Cameron. And again, that is not the kind of relationship that you see on these kinds of shows. I think a lot of shows would be tempted for the relationship to turn sexual, and it does not in this season, and that is a great thing. I, I appreciate the fact that that Boz is horny, though. I do like that because <laughs> he's a man. And, you know, when you're in prison, I would imagine there are urges that come up. But uh, but yeah, this is great. I love it. I love the Boz Cameron relationship. It is it is my favorite of the entire series. Sort of. I don't know if that's a conversation you wanted to have later, but definitively, that is my favorite relationship of the show. It's certainly, I think, the best platonic relationship of the show without a doubt but maybe you can say overall a uh, relationship i mean there's definitely an argument to be made there it's certainly one of the healthiest 
That is for sure. But you mentioned Bosworth's horniness, and that's a great way to get into episode three, The Way In. Uh, We actually see Barry is letting Bosworth stay with him and has also held on to Bosworth's car. I like that that relationship is here again, and we just get uh, Barry for a brief scene. And uh, his horniness is him – it gets shown by him and his ex-wife Ginny meeting up at a hotel and uh, doing the deal, if you will. Everything's not all good, though, with them because Ginny tells Bosworth not to show up for their son James's wedding rehearsal dinner, which, as you can imagine, very much hurts Bosworth, who ignores the request and shows up anyway. But he does stay in his car in the parking lot. And his son James comes out to the car and Bosworth shares with him the, the very nice speech that he would have given at the rehearsal dinner. And uh, another nice moment is just his son telling his dad, you know, I'm no longer mad at you. And that both he and his wife want Bosworth to come to the wedding. And Bosworth very politely says, you know, maybe some other time. Uh, but he does gift them his car and takes a bus home. All this stuff with Bosworth and his son were very touching. Uh, and we'll see as this kind of unravels at the season of Bosworth kind of transitioning from his blood family to his found family. But it's not as if like things are going horrible with his son or him. It's just. Things are different now, and I and I thought that him, seeing him with his son again was was seeing this uh, this different side of Bosworth was very nice. I really love the fact that we did not see his ex wife at all in the first season, for whatever reason, and here we just find them, and they're hooking up in a hotel room. I I really like that, and I like the fact that we get some exploration of the relationship between Boz and his son. We get some resolution between those two that is very healthy. And very helpful. So I I just, I really enjoyed the boss stuff in this episode. And it's very clear that whatever happened between seasons one and two, they identified the fact that Boz was a character that could be explored and that they could do a lot of really interesting things. So uh, I was just, I was very happy about all of the boss stuff that, that was in this entire season, but in this episode. And again, I love the fact that there's so many times when fathers and sons and mothers and daughters and they don't get along and there's a, there's, there's strife between them. And I love the fact that this episode is, there is some resolution, not to say that things are perfect, but I love the fact that there is, that there is a, a mea culpa, uh, words that we used earlier, but I love, that's, that's really what I appreciate. Yeah. I think it would have been, I, w- I was going to say tacky, but maybe just overwrought to have the poor father-son relationship. I'm glad that's still healthy, even if his marriage has gone awry. It's good to see. Joe's in his new role, and the lack of ingenuity is really getting to him. And he decides to pitch to his soon-to-be father-in-law uh, the idea of folding data entry, his department, into data analytics. And immediately, Joe gives it the nod and his approval. And he also messes with Joe's head a bit, making some analogy about a seat opening up on a bus and not taking it for several reasons, but one of them may be because you feel you don't deserve it. I don't know if he's ex- suggesting that Joe has some sort of imposter syndrome or what, but uh, or or he gave Joe the job as a test where he would hope he'd come back and try to fight for a bigger role or something. But hard to see where Jacob is is aiming here uh, when he's talking to Joe. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure where they were going with this either. And I think this is one of the reasons that the Joe the, the Joe storyline just doesn't totally work for me. Again, I think the scenes, the the acting between the actors is very good, but again, I think some of the it it's it's very clunky at times. And I think you get a lot of that clunkiness as well when we get into 
uh, the dinner party because you really see the difference between Donna and Sarah. And Donna just has so much personality. Uh, she's obviously a very attractive woman. Not to say that Sarah is unattractive, but the way that Donna carries herself, I think it just like you get a very different vibe from the two of them. And even though the scene is supposed to be about how kind of Joe is behaving, I couldn't help but but notice the dichotomy between the couples and how they relate to each other and the chemistry. Like Gordon and Donna, whether they're fighting, whether they're in love, whether they're having sex, like these are two people who have a ton of chemistry together. And you just don't get that with Sarah and Joe, I just don't buy their relationship. And I think that's, that's part of the issue. And I don't know if it's subconscious that we're thinking about Joe having imposter syndrome, but again, I think that the show, it very much feels like all of these different characters are getting, you know, either a sense of resolution, like Boz and his son, or, you know, Gordon and Donna are doing their thing. And, Again, it's not about like the characters behaving well all the time, but just having a sense of where these characters are going. And it just it doesn't feel like Joe and Sarah are in that place. Like they were in Austin in the previous episode and now they're in this kind of crappy apartment and it's not like things are just not as clear and there's not as much of a through line. There is part of me that wonders, like, are they is it because they're almost like lying to each other or lying to themselves that they aren't advancing as much? Or is that just me making an excuse for lazy writing? I don't know. Maybe both. I mean, I think that the show is conceived as a showcase for Lee Pace and now the show is an ensemble. So how do you put this square peg into a show that is now kind of around? I mean, the metaphor doesn't totally work, but it's uh, that it goes in, into kind of a round ensemble like all these characters are really important and joe i think was supposed to be the most important but he isn't now i think like in a way he's kind of the third maybe the fourth most important character i mean you can even maybe make an argument for fifth because of the way that boz gets treated yeah that's a good point well we do see joe and sarah decide to throw a dinner party and invite gordon donna who are blown away joe has a fiance and i like that they have a scene with them sort of fantasizing about what kind of woman Joe would uh, marry. And they're also blown away by how low key and dressed down the dinner party with Joe and Sarah is, and that it's just a party of four for them. And Sarah is not at all who they would have expected Joe to end up with. Uh, And Sarah also really does not care for how Joe is acting in front of Gordon and Donna as if he has to apologize for the way he's living now compared to how they knew him as part of Cardiff. And it's also the first time that Gordon and Donna learned that Joe was shut out of the money from the buyout of the the company. But Joe tells Gordon sincerely that he would take the life he has now and Sarah over any money, uh, and Donna does not buy it. Uh, And Joe later gets inspiration from their mainframe room at work when he realizes that they're active the eight hours a day they're at work, but dormant for the other 16, and he calls it a way in. Get the, the titular line in there. So Donna's not buying this new Joe, and I guess you were not either. No, Donna and I certainly have that in common, that we are not we are not buying Joe. I, I also love the conversation that they have about who's, who Joe's fiancé could be. That is the kind of conversation that only a husband and wife could have, I feel. Uh, it was just great. Like, it's kind of catty, it's kind of gossipy, but it feels very down-to-earth and real. Like, 
you would have that conversation with your spouse, partner, wife, husband, whatever. And it's a, it's a very intimate moment that I appreciated tremendously because, you know, Joe or I'm sorry, Gordon and Donna are very up and down at times, but I really like the fact that, that they do have these, these sensitive moments and that it's not just all strife between the two. And I think that's that's very realistic, I think, of a of a marriage or a long term relationship. I mean, even in this episode, you see they still get horny for each other. Uh, so you, you get it all with with Don and Gordon. You get so many different ups and downs and loving moments and not so loving moments. And uh, I think that's very real of a relationship. Yes, it can be a bit extreme at times in television shows, but I think it's not it's not all uh Love. It's not all love all the time, and it's not all strife all the time. It's a it's a mix of and and it's all over the place. And you see that with them too. Uh, you also get to see Gordon make some nerdy ass Superman two jokes in the garage, on top of the horniness. So here's what I was thinking. So Gordon was making Superman jokes and references. Scoot McNary would go on to play a character in Batman versus Superman. I want Gordon's thoughts. Gordon is an old man watching Batman versus Superman and seeing Scoop McNair in the wheelchair. I want his thoughts on that. Well, we, you know, we got the, them coming out of return of the Jedi. Are you telling me there's not a flash forward at the series finale with him coming out of the show being like, that sucked. Or maybe he really liked force awakens. You never know. No, I, I meant, more- I meant seeing Batman versus Superman. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause uh, it is, uh, it's very totally different. And then Gordon finds out there's a four-hour cut of Justice League. <laughs> oh, man. Well, he only cares if Batman says fuck in that movie, because that'll make it good. And that's when Gordon says for his debilitating brain injury to just take him. But he begs for death. Uh, <laughs> hey, it would be nice to know if he made it 30 years after his diagnosis, though. So there's some positive spin to that. There is, uh, there is some positive spin to that, for sure. But what we will have to see, meaning I will have to see, and you already know. So back at Mutiny... There's this big malware issue that apparently needs Donna's help. So Cameron calls their house, but then she has to get to this number that was left for the babysitter as they're at the dinner party. And so the number she gets is, of course, to Joe's apartment, which Cameron is stunned to hear Joe's voice and hangs up and tells him to shut everything down. Finally, they get in contact with Donna. She goes back to mutiny on their way home from the dinner party. And Tom is telling Cameron they got to stay offline until they can send all their users new floppy disk, which obviously will take a lot of time. And she's really obsessed with not being down for any period of time if she can help it. And they realize that, unfortunately, it was Gordon's Sonaris software that destroyed the system. Cameron yells at him, calls him a sellout and a wannabe. And then Gordon tells them that, you know, Donna's the only reason they haven't been evicted yet. Is she's been using their personal funding to help pay their bills. Donna calmly has Gordon go home as she goes inside to fix things and Gordon gets all mad in the garage at home. Cameron's not happy that Donna's been one having dinner with Joe behind her back and two that putting her own money into paying their bills and says she'll be fired if she ever does that again. And then the next morning, Cameron has what I diagnose as a panic attack. And this is the reality of going on their computer and seeing there's no users online. Tom handles the situation really well, putting Cameron's mind on something else like he's dealt with these sort of panic attacks before. And then at home, Gordon apologizes to Donna for implementing Sonaris behind her back. Lots to unpack there, but Gordon kind of uh, getting his hands and thinks he probably shouldn't have. And uh, then you see this relationship with Gordon and Tom blossoming or Cameron. 
Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with Gordon and Tom having a relationship, but <laughs> it's just know, not what happens in the show. It's just not what happens in the show, and uh, that is another very intimate moment that we get between the two characters. And again, that's something that I I've always appreciated about this show is that they are not afraid to. Yes, these characters are going to be in conflict, but they but they do have these these moments of intimacy between the characters, and I think it really adds a lot to what's going on because. I've always said the plot is important. It's not unimportant, but this show much more so than breaking bad and mad men is about like the way that we see the characters and the way the characters relate to each other. It's not necessarily about this drug deal, this, this thing that's happening. Uh, And again, you know, this stuff is important to these people, but the the stakes are, are, I think lower uh, just based on what's going on. What a, what a moment for Cameron, though, to, re- to go online and realize there's no one online. I wonder if people who, ha- who are, like, influencers in their Instagram and Twitter accounts, like, do they have those panic attacks when they lose followers and whatnot? That's what, that's what goes through my head when I watch the show, Kevin. Probably, yes, if that's the way they make their money, especially. I mean, I also want to pitch uh, Halt and Catch Fire Season 20 uh, when Joe realizes that an easy way for him to make money is to just create a right wing website and just, uh, you know, create a group of followers. Like that's the logical conclusion is that Joe becomes the president of the United States because of like a QAnon like organization. I say Joe creates parlor in the last season. Yes, that is the, no season 20. We gotta, we gotta <laughs> fast 20. forward. We gotta fast forward to the end. I mean, he would be about Trump's age at this point. So it is, uh, it's somewhat logical. All right, well, you send your 16-season pitch to AMC and let me know so that goes. Uh, I don't think it's going to go very well. I, I need to put some zombies in it, and maybe they'll consider it. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Episode four, Play With Friends. Uh, Joe pitches his plan to lease the mainframe during off hours to an executive named Ellis Mortimer. Ellis blows it off and tells Joe to pitch it to Jacob instead. Not really a notable scene except for that Ellis is played by Javier Graeta, who is known to us as Juan Bolsa in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. So whenever there's a crossover between our shows, I feel like I need to point that out. Uh, interesting to see Juan Bolsa here. I didn't get the sense that you recognized him right away. I, I did not. I mean, he's he's kind of a, a tertiary character on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Once you pointed out to me, though, that I definitely, of course, saw the connection. The other... The other actor that was on Breaking Bad and the show, I did, I did notice that. Yeah, that that's a much easier catch, I would say. Uh, so Joe meets Gordon when he returns from his morning jog and wants him to help him with this project, but Gordon declines. Really, the most noteworthy thing here is the red Adidas tracksuit that Gordon is wearing. It feels like someone. It really feels like a tryhard trying to be someone he's not. Moment for Gordon. It also feels like somebody watched the Royal Tenenbaums before this and decided <laughs> that uh, that Gordon is Ben Stiller, which uh. is, I mean, that also works. I mean, it's it's so fantastic. I mean, the thing about this show that that's also great is the fashion is so emblematic of the characters. Like the clothing that they wear is so representative of where they're at. And Gordon is probably my favorite. And it's not because his fashion is good, but because it's so awkward all the time like it's constantly feel like he's trying to dress to impress and it just doesn't work like cameron dresses like like crap but like that works because of who cameron is donna does like a balance between the two and i think i would argue she's probably the best dressed of of the four and joe of course is wearing his power suits and whatnot 
Um, and Toby is Toby, especially when he walks on the airplane, which we'll get to. Uh, but I love I love the fashion on this show. And it's weird to say that on a, on a podcast, but I mean, it's they do a great job of dressing the characters in a way that represents who these people are. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I think Cameron has to forego everything to keep mutiny afloat. And if that includes her hygiene, her sleep, her sense of fashion, which I mean, wasn't amazing at uh at, at in season one or anything either, I think is very true to a startup culture. And Muni at this point is financially struggling to the point where they got to ask their employees to forego pay in exchange for company shares. Classic move by a lot of these startups, I would imagine. Most people stay, but Yo-Yo has to leave. He's just not confident those shares will end up being worth anything. And then I shut off the show and I didn't watch for the rest of the season. I mean... <laughs> I understand because you have a very soft place in your heart for Yo-Yo. He's wonderful. And he doesn't come back, I don't think. He comes back at the end of the season. Okay, he does. Okay, good. Whew. That's right. I think he is on the plane. Okay, good, yes, good. Yes, he is on the plane. He comes back in the previous episode because of Lev uh, going to the hospital. Yes. And okay. Yeah, okay. I did forget that. I think, so maybe, if you, so I think if you, maybe my brain rejected that he ever quit. And so <laughs> when he was back, I just uh, it, it just didn't feel weird. Uh, you really need to watch Shazam. Not that Yo-Yo has a big part in it, but he does have enough of a part. You just need to watch Shazam, man. It's one of the few good DC movies. I can watch Shazam. I think I can get down with that. One thing, though, that Donna realizes is that there's this big groundswell of people who are using the community feature who aren't even customers. And this really excites her because community's her baby. And Tom is uh, showing up late, super tired for work, which Cameron doesn't like. But you also can tell that she's concerned for his well-being. And by happenstance, runs into him when she goes to the grocery store late, and he's working uh, overnights as a stock boy to make ends meet, but while also serving the master of community. And I think that's just the reality of the situation, because he's willing to forego his pay for mutiny, but he, he has to get the money somewhere else. I also think it's interesting that, like, I mean, it shows how much she cares about mutiny and how much she thinks it's everybody's thing, but it's also, like, at this point, if you're having... And this is just my opinion. Uh, If I have a group that is essentially all volunteer workers, I'm going to be as nice to them as I possibly can. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be a lot nicer than than Cameron is. It's it's really interesting because they are really creating this dichotomy that Cameron – she's not a one-for-one for for Joe, but that she definitely has some of the same attributes as Joe, and they really make them similar. And I really appreciate the nuance because I think Cameron was very much treated with kid gloves in season one as kind of the the rebellious one against these older squares. But now they're really adding some nuance and just showing that she is also not a perfect person, that she is making some poor decisions and uh, she's having a lot of difficulty. I mean, we saw that with the panic attack. We see it continue here uh, with the offering of stocks and then yelling at her, her colleagues and – yeah, I mean, basically, this is supposed to be a place without a boss. And then Donna, or I'm sorry, Cameron, very much is acting like a boss. Yeah, absolutely. But Bosworth is there still helping. I guess he came back, says he has some ideas for Cameron to help with money, including door-to-door customer service to lapsed users to see what they could do to get him back. Love the scene where we see Bosworth going to a lapsed user and even scores himself a date in the process. Okay, I have way too much to say about this. Uh, first of all... <laughs> 
when he talked about going door to door to internet customers, I could not help but think <laughs> about Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. <laughs> Did you say on Community that, yeah, that would have been a, a pretty fun thing to do? <laughs> um, there was also the fact I, I could watch an entire digital series of Boz just going to the lapsed customers and, and trying to convince them to come back. I definitely could have watched that. Like, if I could have watched Mike Ehrmantraut yell at people, I could watch Boz pitch people on coming back. And the fact that he gets a date out of it, I mean, it's just, that is who Boz is. Like, Boz is a very scrappy, like, he gives off this very, like, good old boy vibe, but he is so, like, he's so, I guess the, the term I'm going to use is street smart. He just has a way about him that gets people to like him, and he comes off as sincere. I think he is sincere for the most part, but that's what I love about Boz is that when you first see him, oh, he's just a good old boy. But like, he knows he's a very smart person, even if he doesn't have a highfalutin degree, like maybe some of his younger colleagues. Like, that is a guy that you want in your company because he is able to relate to people. Like, in a way, he's kind of the Saul Goodman of this series, I guess. Yes, I would say so. There's maybe a little bit more earnestness to him and right. people and and like Bosworth, I think, has more respect and more friendships than Jimmy McGill, Saul Goodman have. Yeah, I mean, of course, I think the same that like, Gordon is much more sincere than Walter White is. I mean, this is just a much more sincere and earnest show in general, with the exception of Joe. I mean, Bosworth really has kind of. He can have his cake and eat it, too, because he has the respect of the executives that he later works for with his son. Uh, And then he has the respect. uh, I mean, regardless of what we saw in in episode two, he has the respect of Cameron and these younger users of mutiny because he's he's got ideas. He's been there. He's seen what works and doesn't work. And uh, even though a lot of his ideas aren't necessarily presented with the, the attention they should at times, all of his belief in mutiny and his want to help is all very real. And he's able to bring all of that expertise from the corporate world into this, incorporating it into this DIY startup uh, with with success. And it's really fun to see that. Yeah, Boz is great. And I love Boz. One thing that's not so great is Cameron suggesting to Donna to cut community to help save some space, which is really absurd because it's all just text. So it doesn't take up that much space. But she covers it up saying it's a security risk. But really, she just doesn't like it. And Donna's does, so Don, does Donna come back and say, can you give us six seasons in a movie? No, she does not. Oh, damn it. So Donna is so upset about this request that she actually leaves and goes home. And she's telling Gordon how much community means to her. And Gordon encouraged her to see it through and keep going. So another little bit of role reversal here where Gordon would come home from work with his gripes and grudges and things like this that Donna was able to talk out and encourage him and all that. And now that's Gordon's job with Donna when she comes home. Uh, And Gordon himself has this aha moment as he's leaving her to decompress in the bathroom, going to Joe and agreeing to join on on his time sharing project, but only if Mutiny is their first client. Donna, meanwhile, calls out Cameron for never having used community and thus not understanding it. And she uses it for the very first time to contact Tom and say some not so nice things about Gordon in the process. And then Tom has to tell her, oops, you sent that message to everybody, including Donna who obviously is hurt by this, but uses this as a chance to make Cameron realize that how she treats people is reflected by other staff members because she is sort of basically their leader, even if she's not her boss in her mind, but also to prove that there is power in community. So Cameron decides that she's going to leave community alone 
and uh, with an invitation from Tom, blow off some steam in this Nerf gun battle. And she ends up in a closet with Tom where you uh, think they're going to smooch, but they end up really excitedly talking about, hey, this game we're playing in real life, that could be our next computer game. And then they smooch the next day when they're cleaning up outside. So again, more really good stuff with Don and Cameron and their relationship where they're butting heads but end up respecting each other and things are good if not a little bit tense. And then you get uh, Tom and uh, Cameron finally smooching. I love your your use of the word smooch. It's an underused word, I think. The quote, uh, because I think it's important to just say like what Cameron said. Cameron says that Gordon is the person who hung two kids on Donna and trapped her. And that is a very powerful thing, especially given what happens a couple of episodes later. Uh, So I I really wanted to point that out because it is something that is a really important moment in the show because it just shows the differences between Cameron and Donna, both their perspectives on family and life. But it also kind of represents a a turning point for the series in that a a lot of the focus is going to go to community now. And this is where I think the main crux of the season really begins, because you have Gordon um, working to help Mutiny by with this timeshare project and getting Joe involved once again indirectly at first. But his involvement is going to become even more so as the uh, as the season wears on. You get a lot of great Cameron and Tom stuff. I love the way that they shoot the Nerf battle. Like they do a lot of close-ups and uh, they do a lot of like POV shots handheld, and it's uh, it's fantastic. Uh, episode fours for Halt and Catch Fire are always really good. I feel like the first season, episode four, was like a revelatory thing. I think this one was just really, really good overall. But it it definitely feels like this is where the season kind of begins and we get our kind of the main thrust of the plot. And you even get Gordon passing out. This cannot be a coincidence, but the fact that he is drinking Coca-Cola, that can't be a coincidence with him doing Coke earlier and now drinking Coke. Yeah, he's just moving on from one Coke to the next. Nothing wrong with that. I hope he was drinking old Coke, though, and not new Coke. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're, you mentioned Gordon passing out in the mainframe room, which he does. So more issues with his health coming to light here. But he does get to deliver the good news about the mainframes to Donna back at home. She's in the bathroom and she's being really squirrely. And uh, so is Gordon because he doesn't really mention Joe's involvement in the mainframes. And we see the reason for Donna's squirreliness is that she uh, just realized that she has a positive pregnancy test. And that's why she's been feeling sick in the morning. That's something we didn't really mention, but she has having some morning nausea and whatnot lately. And uh, that's why a third bun in the oven. Episode five in extract and defend gives us the official diagnosis for what's going on with Gordon. He has an, and I pardon me for butchering this toxic encephalopathy, which is caused by both the, the lead solder found in computers and I'm sure his cocaine use as well. This results in his brain atrophying, which explains his mood swings and some of his like physical behaviors that have been going on. And sadly, the doctor tells him he has not experienced even the worst of it yet. He's trying to create the opportunity to tell Donna, but she keeps putting it off for work. One thing I like here is you get a real sign of the times because Gordon's off with the kids and says he'll take them anywhere. And they want to go back to Grandma and Grandpa's house because Grandpa's brought back this thing called a Nintendo from Japan. As we learned in season one, he has a lot of business dealings in Japan. And you get this scene with Gordon and his mother-in-law that it's very heartfelt and fun with her. And it gets awkward because the conversation 
leads to her assuming that Gordon was here to pay her back for all the money they lent him years ago for the symphonic. Now that he's come into money on his own and the mood changes very much as Gordon ends up writing her a check for 23 grand on the spot. So again, lots going on here with Gordon, his official diagnosis, nothing he can really do much about. We get the Nintendo, which is going to be introduced into the United States by the end of the year. And this tense scene with his mother-in-law. Nintendo, that'll never sell. It's computer games that are the future here in 1985. I just want to point this out because Annette O'Toole, of course, is playing Donna's mother. And do you remember a movie and a television show that Annette O'Toole was in that is closely related to one of Gordon's interests? I know she was in Superman. She was in Superman 3. And and she was also Clark Kent's mother on Smallville. Ah, okay. So the Superman connections are all over the place uh, for Scoop McNary. And it's it's a really great scene. I love the fact that it starts off very pleasant and then it gets confrontational toward the end. And you do get the sense of tension that exists between the two. And we've talked about kind of negative familial relationships. I, I do appreciate the fact that we get both sides of it, that Gordon does seem legitimately appreciative and that the conversation does start out well, but that it does kind of turn be- it does kind of turn because of the legitimate tension that exists. Like 23 grand is a lot now. But can you imagine in 1983 having to owe someone $23,000? I mean, that is that that is a significant amount of money regardless, but I would imagine 40 years ago uh, that it was even more so. So, yeah, it was uh, it was just a very well-executed scene. And again, some great casting. Annette O'Toole is very good in this role. She is. And I think it sucks even more when you owe 23 grand. You didn't even think you even owed in the first place. Yeah, I mean, but – and she's very careful to mention that it's not Donna that owes them the money. It's Gordon that owes them the money. And that's kind of like just sinking the knife in even further. Yeah, it sucks. And Donna starts her morning slash end of the shift at Mutiny with a beer. Very wise for a pregnant woman. And she stops herself mid-gulp when she realizes what she's doing. Thank God. And Gordon finally tells her that Joe is the one with the mainframe hookup when Donna says that she wants to sit down with a West Group rep and uh, put their agreement in writing. And this, of course, will all be an issue once Cameron finds out and Joe also wants a transaction to remain off book. And uh, Joe also has to think about how he's going to sell this mainframe sharing idea to Jacob. And when he does, Jacob actually admires Joe's initiative, but wants to meet with somebody from Mutiny before giving full approval. Uh, Joe finally tells Sarah about Cameron and Mutiny, and uh, Sarah says there can't be any secrets between us. Uh, And then at their apartment, Joe presents Sarah a prenup to show that he isn't after her just for the money. And uh, Sarah says they're moving too fast and need to spend time apart. She goes back to Austin. Who cares? Uh, But yeah, so now you get this first meeting with Cameron and Joe, and it's uh, as awkward as you'd expect, but they're at least professionals about it. Uh, They try to be. That's that's for sure. And I mean, again, all the scenes with Mackenzie Davis and Lee Pace are electric. I think they have a lot of great chemistry. The relationship isn't good. But if you were to tell me that Lee Pace and Mackenzie Davis were going to be in a romantic comedy that comes out like next week, I would go in and see it immediately because they have a just a tremendous amount 
of chemistry together. And that's really impressive uh, to see uh, from these two actors. And they're clearly building to this moment. And I'm glad that they kind of do it about halfway through the season because they were very clearly trying to keep them separated for good reasons. And now bringing them back together is a smart move. Also a smart move. Look, I, 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 I'm not a fan of the Sarah character, but leaving Dallas for Austin, based on everything I know about those two cities, that seems like the right call. Austin seems like a really cool place. Even even in the 1980s, I would imagine it's a really great place for barbecue and culture. So uh, Sarah going back there makes a lot of sense. Hopefully a lot of those great places can stay open in 2020. Yeah, Austin, Austin is one of those cities that I am desperate uh, to go to, and hopefully I will have a chance to. It's it's one of my friend's favorite place in the world. He goes every year to see friends and I and he's made me want to go visit as well. So hopefully when things uh, aren't awful in the world, maybe we can do a live podcast, Kevin, and record in person in in Austin. Yeah, let's do that. If this is a video podcast, you would have seen me say, yeah, let's do that as I'm shaking my head now. And you're making the wank off sign, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, oh, live podcast. Let's do that. Look, well, if, we're, if, if we're going to Austin, there won't be a moment when we're sober. Well, let's say, speaking of wanking off, (laughs) as we often do, we have Cameron and Tom are bang buds now, but they're keeping up appearances with Tom, like sneaking out through the window and stuff. So no one sees him. But oops, Bosworth sees him. I love Donna tells Cameron about Joe and she uh, closes the door and loses her shit. Uh, Ted's obviously not happy to hear about her ex being back in the picture as he returns with a VHS copy of The Terminator, the 1984 movie that, uh. I would say it stood the test of time. It's one of those rare movies where I think some people prefer the sequel to the original, but uh, I give The Terminator the big nod. The sequel to The Terminator was one of my 100 favorite movies ever, and you can read that on EnterTheRealWorld.com. And again, we talk about Gordon and the Superman stuff. It is it is tremendously funny to me uh, that they have Mackenzie Davis making Terminator references because, of course – she would go on to play a character in Terminator Dark Fate, a movie that is actually good. I'm going to just come out and say the Terminator sequels are bad. Terminator Dark Fate is actually good. It's a great showcase for Mackenzie Davis and for Linda Hamilton. And even Arnold Schwarzenegger gets a couple of really good scenes, too. Well, Bosworth is the one who talks Cameron, at least giving Joe a chance, but also says, you know, you have the freedom. Just kick him to the curb if things don't sound right. Another great Bosworth scene comes up because Donna gets really excited when she realizes Lob is flirting with somebody over community. So there's a new use for it. And hilarious moment with Bosworth realizing Lob is gay. Maybe perhaps wouldn't stand the test of time, but I thought it was really hilarious here because it's uh, Bosworth more or less embarrassing himself than anything. But it got a genuine laugh out of me. I mean, it's 1983. He's an old man. I, I, I don't think that his response was inappropriate. It's not like he, he used an epithet or something. So right. I think he had a very logical, but still the kind of reaction that doesn't make you hate him. Like it's more, it's more surprise than, oh boy, this guy. So yeah. I appreciated that. Well, and you know, things aren't great for Bosworth because he has his credit card declined on his fancy schmancy date. And Cameron has to come and bail him out. And she also freaks out because Tom leaves early to go on a date. Uh, but he sneaks back in her window, and that was more keeping up with appearances. So at least they embraced end the episode and things were okay there. But Cameron was definitely concerned because of how things had gone with Tom earlier in the day and whatnot. And uh turns out, again, he's just uh, fooling everybody. But 
really behind closed doors, all is uh, all is fair in love and war. Yeah, I would say so. And just I, I love the the fact that he leaves out the window. It's it's just it's also got a great payoff, which we'll get to uh, very shortly. So episode six, ten broad thirty six. Uh, before they present the contract mutiny, Jacob tells Joe, "Hey, you know the hourly rate of three dollars an hour we promised. You need to raise it to five. And then eventually he says, "Like, yeah, you can go lower than three fifty, but that's it." The payoff for the Tom Window thing is in that this episode, the engineers prank him into escaping through the window, and they all laugh at him, which is great. But it's just then when Joe shows up at Mutiny headquarters with the contract, and as Cameron and Donna discuss whether to sign, Joe and Tom make some small talk. And despite what Jacob said, Joe won't budge from top five dollars, even when Donna verbally knocks him down a peg or two. Joe leaves, but. She assures Cameron that he's going to come back and agree on their $4 an hour rate. Uh, He doesn't. He shuts down the network and Cameron inappropriately yells at Donna in front of everyone to the point where Bosworth has to get her to stop. And he privately has to set her straight, too, as Donna goes to West Group to apologize to Joe. So this is really when the friction between Donna and Cameron sort of snaps. And uh, I mean, it goes to show that. It's like Donna thinks she has everything right, and then something like this goes wrong where he shuts down the network, and Cameron is freaked out by that again. And uh, yeah, just it's just not great right now between the two of them. There, A lot happens in this episode, especially. I don't know about you, but if you did not like Joe before, this episode is not going to help you like Joe anymore because he is just a total obstructionist in this episode. And it just, it almost, it feels unnecessary at times. Like, why does he have to be this much of an asshole, especially with what happens in the opening scene? Like, he is just being obtrusive for the sake of it. And, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons that I say they can't figure the Joe character out. Because they talk about, oh, he's going to change, he's going to be a different person. And this is the Joe that we saw. This is a worse version of Joe than we ever saw in, in season one. So... That's why that's why I had a little bit of hard, a hard time with the uh, with the Joe por- the Joe portion. I, I love the tension that it creates between Cameron and Donna, especially when Cameron m- mentions the fact that that Donna is on the rag. I mean that is such a oh, that is such point. a cheap comment. And again, it's it's we 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 know that Cameron has kind of a sharp tongue at times, but we're really seeing that fully realized as this is kind of the second time that she's really gone too far with Cameron or with Donna, and it leads to a very powerful moment uh, between these two characters in the end. So I really love the tension that it creates, but the Joe stuff, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It, it, it did not, it did not work for me totally in this step in this episode. And I think that's fair. And then you see when, when Donna does go to Joe, he lays out some strategic benchmarks mutiny could hit. And if they agree to meet those benchmarks, Joe will get them to $3.50 an hour once they're met. One of them is to get them on a system that runs Unix. And in order to get that low price as soon as possible, Tom has this plan to create a decoy computer that they'll make Joe think runs on Unix so they can get that $3.50 price point as soon as possible. And then at their own pace and leisure, they can go cross-platform. Bosworth chimes in saying, you know, you should probably just do this for real. And hey, maybe these fixes from Joe will actually make their system better. But uh, he's not going to not gonna step on any toes, but he's just offering his advice and then staying out of their way. Classic Bosworth move. Of course, Joe immediately realizes it's a ruse when they present it to him and he storms off. 
But Joe uses this ruse to instead pitch Jacob the technology of broadband, which Mutiny used as part of the ruse to try to fool Joe. And Joe believes that broadband is the future and actually says that West Group should acquire Mutiny. So not only are they going to put them on their broadband system, but just buy the company outright. I do like the fact that they don't make Jacob just this old man who doesn't know anything, that, that Jacob is at least trying to see the future and is willing to go along with Joe's plans. And that is something that I like about a lot of the characters, that they are that there is some evolution that – and there's no doubt that there are people who are old and don't get it, but that's not really what the show is about. It's about people who are trying to engage with the future and – that's something that that I have always liked about almost all of the characters that they are all trying to see the future and they're trying to move forward and I really like that that part of it that even this Jacob Wheeler who's probably in his sixties or seventies that is willing to go along with this I I do like that part of it but again the Joe stuff where he fix it, figures out the ruse like pretty predictable stuff I actually think it would have been more interesting if he didn't and like. Joe has some sort of a blind spot for Cameron in some way, like that he didn't see the ruse. I almost mm. think that would have been more interesting. Yeah, it is a little bit of a cliche, but uh, I, I think there was like a, just enough amount of tension in it. And I think there's danger in presenting Joe as a dummy in that situation, because I think they see him as this brainless, charming guy who has money, who they can fool but I like that they kind of show that he isn't that. And when he plays the game over and over and realizes it's getting the same result pretty fast, I do appreciate that they show that Joe isn't an idiot. He has some idea of what this technology is. So cliche, yes. But I think – I don't know if I would have felt worse if they if the con worked on Joe or not. I mean I think this, this goes back to a lot of my feelings on the Joe stuff. The Gordon yeah. stuff, however, I think works for me in total – really well even if it's not great it's it's not great what happens to him but i i genuinely think this is some of the best gordon stuff of the series i agree and because it, it's a great thing where he does a bad thing but you totally understand why he does it and what he does is he takes the his daughters and they visit his brother henry in california his brother henry is played by kevin rankin who plays kenny in both breaking bad and el camino this is the one you recognized right away Yes, this is the one. He's just—he's got a very recognizable face, and I definitely uh, remember him from El Camino and Breaking Bad. And I believe he was also on Justified. He's great. He's a great character actor. I knew him first as Lucian in Undeclared, the lesser-known Judd Apatow show that I really, really love. Here's the thing that I really like about the Gordon segment is that it's not just about what happens with him and Jules, but there is also this layer of the brother is involved – and, like, at first things are going really well with his brother, but then things start to deteriorate as they both kind of find things out. It's it's fantastic. I just – this – all the stuff with Gordon is just so great because there's so many layers to it. It's not just a simple, oh, boy, Henry and Gordon hate each other. No, Gordon loves his <clears> brother, but then it gets to a point where, you know, Henry is an alcoholic and he is the one that is probably tanking his business. But on the other hand, Gordon slept with one of his exes and was stoned while doing so while his kids were there. But Gordon is also going through a lot right now. I got more out of the Jules character than I did out of the Sarah character. Like Jules is – she probably has 10 minutes of screen time. I got more from her and understood her perspective more than I did did Sarah. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Gordon does the thing. He has to go tell his brother about his condition. Uh, and it's and like you said, these, these he loves his brother and they chat and his brother has his problem. So maybe it's not great that they talked about it at a bar. But Gordon himself, I mean, he's not an alcoholic, I don't think, but he also has his drug problems and he does enjoy cocktails and beers on his own. And you, we see that he also would abuse alcohol in season one to kind of quell his woes. So there's a lot of reality there in that situation with the two of them sharing genes that they would both have similar issues like that. He does reconnect with this woman from his youth and has an affair in a truck and it's basically somebody who he can dump all of his worries onto. And I like that Jules even reads that situation and bails once she realizes that. And then Gordon has to leave with his kids when Henry knows what he did and they get in a fight. And then we have them at this hotel where Gordon has to call Donna to sing their daughter Haley a bedtime song as she's having some problems sleeping. And uh, he's keeping it a secret that they were kicked out of the house. And you asked me to make a note of of their daughter, Haley, being the one who's having some difficulty sleeping. Right, because I think there are times when it's easy to just dismiss the kid, the kid part. And obviously there's not a lot going on with the kids, but it is important to start to understand their personality differences. That Haley is a, is a little bit more on the emotional side uh, than her sister. And I, yeah, that's why I wanted to just point this out because it will become important in future seasons just to have an understanding of the dynamics of the daughter. This is not a Mad Men situation where like seven different people play Bobby and Bobby was irrelevant to the show. Like this actually is going to matter uh, when it comes to incorporating the daughters more into what's going on on the show itself. So that's why I wanted to point it out. And I love that Gordon dumps all of this on Jules. And Jules has a very human reaction, and it's like, you're just dumping all this on me. And she is correct. She is right. And I really appreciate that they make Gordon the wrong person in the situation. Again, we are sympathetic with him, but, like, the thing, like, the mantra is, like, your mental health does not give you the right to be an asshole. Exactly. I'm not saying you can excuse things or whatever, but there's only so far you can go with someone who uses that as their excuse for everything before you just – it reaches a boiling point or it becomes an excuse that doesn't work anymore. And I think certain things like an affair or what have you are things you can't – you can understand why he did it, especially with the explanation he gives later, but it doesn't excuse the act. And with Donna, you have earlier in the episode she told her mother about – her pregnancy and lies and said she had a miscarriage. And then the episode ends with camera taking her to an abortion clinic. So we, we, you talked about how we have this serious moment at the end where they've reconciled and she does this for Donna. This is heavy, man. This is really heavy for, for a, a TV show of any, of any sort. And especially in the eighties, that's still a pretty taboo thing to be dealing with. There's so few shows and movies that, that deal with abortion. And, this is the only show that I know that discusses abortion in terms of somebody who is already a mother. And I was actually looking at a statistic just out of idle curiosity. One of the numbers that I saw is the 59% of, of women who have an abortion already have a child. So they are already a mother. And that's just not something that you see represented. If abortion is portrayed on screen, it is generally by somebody who is younger and who's not already a mother. So 
it is a very taboo subject. And again, when the majority of the writers are male, it's not an easy topic to talk about, I would imagine, because men do not get abortions. So I'm really glad that this show addressed this issue because it is something that is not pleasant to talk about. It's not something where you can make a, you know, a snarky comment like we, we tend to do with this show. But it's just a very serious topic that is handled in a sensitive and non-exploitive way. Yes, it is something that is important, but it's something that it, that does hang over the rest of the series because we know what Donna has done. Donna has made this very hard decision, and she does not tell her mother about it. She really doesn't tell Gordon about it in this season. So it's something that, that hangs over the show. Yeah, and it, it comes up again even in the next episode in a very harsh way. Jumping ahead, she does she does not tell Gordon about this at all this season, so that's a little bit of a hanging thread going into season three. But now we'll talk about episode seven, Working for the Clampdown. There's a reference to the song Clampdown by The Clash from the album London Calling, which came out in 1979. One of the most classic records of all time. I would say it is a perfect album. Every song is 10 out of 10 amazing record uh it's not played in the episode or if it was it was not on netflix i don't know if it was played on television and not on netflix here or what but i thought that was interesting because they they've had other references including the finale that references a song which is played in it later but anyways that excited me because that album rules but finally we have gordon telling donna about his condition she's rightfully freaked out but gordon assures her he feels fine and that nothing will change because she's talking about leaving mutiny to help take care of him Meanwhile, Gordon has this new business idea where they would create custom PCs to sell directly to stores, and he's convinced some of his ex-coworkers to take a couple days off of work to join him in this new venture, and he's hoping by the end to maybe even convince them to work with him full-time. What do you think of this this new business strategy that Gordon had thought about? I think it works out really well. I think it finally it's Gordon trying to find a purpose and trying to clean himself up after what happened the previous episode. I'm not going to say it was a rock bottom moment, but I think that's kind of how it's portrayed. And Gordon decides that you know he needs to put he needs to put all of his ducks in a row by telling his wife what happens. And I love that we basically get to see the moment after we don't see him actually telling her but it's kind of in the moment after it's a great great camera shot and a great way of uh, the technical aspects of that moment are handled really well so i want to go back to to the season one finale uh where they are you know in the car and they get mugged and one of the things that i was thinking about as i was re-watching that scene is I wonder if the show narratively would have been better off if it was some sort of a car accident. And from a narrative standpoint, then you could have it connect to what happened with what happens with Gordon and getting diagnosed with this degenerative brain disease, as opposed to the mugging, which never, ha- which does not get mentioned at all in season two. There's no PTSD whatsoever or any ramifications of what happened. It's never mentioned. So from a narrative standpoint, I almost wonder if if doing a car accident would have connected the narrative better. I had not considered that. But yeah, perhaps. Maybe you were playing me like a fool, but I'm like, how random is this car accident? Maybe it wasn't random after all. No, I mean, I think it is random. I don't think that they figured this. 
I don't know this for a fact, but the impression that I get is they did not figure. I feel like I see. It, I see what you're trying to say. Like they did the car accident and then later connected it to this issue. They didn't have this in mind when they wrote that scene. Is kind of what your thought is? No, I think that. I mean, I almost think that that's what they should have done. I think the issue is it does not seem to me like they they figured this this idea out for Gordon and this degenerate brain disease until they were starting to crack season two, that this was not something on their mind for season one. And I wish it had been in season one because I think they could have laid the groundwork a little bit better uh, for what's happening to Gordon. Like we know that Gordon has problems beyond even the degenerative brain disease, but I almost wonder if they were able to layer things in season one a little bit better, that this would have made even more sense. Yes. Okay. Yep. I, I think that's right. Because now it's it's almost like you can, as a fan, can retcon it to include that as part of the issue. But it's not like the show ever explicitly does the work for you. Correct. So Donna takes a few days off of work. She talks to her mom about Gordon's situation. and Her mother lays out all the worst case scenarios in classic mom fashion. It even goes as far as to say that losing the baby was a blessing in disguise. How awful and gross is that? So I was with her. Like, the worst-case scenarios, that's fair. Like, that is total. Like, degenerative brain disease is not a good thing. Gordon might be feeling fine, but people who have dementia at first are also fine. And then there's a moment when they are not fine. Yes. So that was all good. But then suggesting that, that is horrendous like even aside from the fact that she got an abortion and not a miscarriage like that is that's some total 80 80s mom shit i you would never i i would like to think that we have evolved and progressed to uh good parents would not say that garbage right i would hope so because she still thinks it was a miscarriage so that is effed up beyond belief uh, i mean it's not brie bella telling nikki that she was <laughs> which she was dead in the womb but you know these writers at least are better than WWE ones. Say, saying miscarriage is a good thing is still pretty bad. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's horrendous. One of Gordon's colleagues is like in the kitchen trying to get coffee, and Donna makes some comment about, hey, just be sure to keep an eye on him. That rightfully makes him raise a bit of an eyebrow. But the business at least is going well because they successfully create their PC in just two days, which has Gordon giving this really nice, encouraging speech. And uh, he mentions Joe kind of off the cuff, and all the colleagues seem really unhappy. He's been in contact with him. But the good news is they make their very first sale to a business called Clark Computer. So if nothing else, they might have an eyebrow raised about what they're watching out for Gordon and the Joe thing, but they've at least made a sale in just a couple days of building their first custom PC. So things are going great for Gordon. All is going to end well. Hey, uh, maybe not. Maybe. Personal PCs and doing that kind of stuff, that is uh, that is a really good business if you know how to do it well, even in 2021. Like that – if he had that idea long term, he could have made a killing. Oh, 100 percent. And then we have dinner with Jacob, Joe, and Sarah. They're not taking her thoughts into consideration and privately she tells Joe she wants him to build something on his own rather than staying with West Group, worried he'll repeat his past if he does. Again, the Sarah character is not the strongest to like make much of this scene, but it kind of just tips your hand on what Joe's future is going to be. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. And oh, my God, just when Sarah opened up her mouth and started speaking the way she was, I was just like, not not great. One of my probably probably one of my least favorite scenes in the season. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But I got a huge pop from me is at the Mutiny House when they have the wacky wall crawler racing. Do you remember Dr. Fad at all from, from I, the 80s I and 90s? I do not. I okay. Don't. 
Dr. Fad was like a VHS tape that like my dad bought on a whim. And this gentleman named Ken Hakuda has played Dr. Fad. He's like a Japanese American. He's like an inventor, a TV personality. I obsessed over the tape I owned of him. And later I found out through an interview that his daughter-in-law is comedian Ali Wong. So that's a fun little thing to to connection there. But yeah, I popped huge seeing those there because I believe he created that toy. Anyways, Cameron meets Tom's mother over lunch. She works in the medical field, which I think in my mind explained how Tom knew to handle her panic attack so well. Joe calls Cameron to tell her that West Group wants to buy them and he'll be over with paperwork tomorrow. And her reaction is um, not exactly happy. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> right. Because she really what she does is she views it as and, and, and talking to them, this seems to be true that they want to make the game secondary to community. And Cameron, when Joe comes over, causes this big stir amongst her co-workers, you know, a big damn the man kind of speech rips up the contract in Joe's face, which neither Donna nor Bosworth seem to think is handling things the right way. But I think Tom gives a smirk to show that he has some admiration, at least from his side of things. And, uh, you know, all the all the co-workers and stuff could cheer all they want. But when they piece that paper and the contract back together and see how much they would make their tune seriously changes. What I think is so fascinating is there is a lot of tension between between art and commerce. And I think you see that represented in this scene. But what the show has to say about capitalism is really fascinating because the reason that Gordon got his degenerative brain disease is because of where he worked and the materials that he was working around. And I would imagine that there are a lot of individuals who who did work with lead and who had a lot of the same problems. And this is something that we're still dealing with. Like if you work around lead, like it has a degenerative effect on your physical and mental body. And that's kind of the price of capitalism in a way. And I think this scene is as well, because on the one hand, yes, you want to create your art. You want to make your games. You want to live in the house. You want to have your nerf battles, but on the other hand, if someone says, Kevin, I'm going to give you $5 million, that is really hard to turn down. $5 million, even split amongst the group, like that's a lot of money. That is a life-changing amount of money. Even in 2021, $5 million is a life-changing amount. In 1985, it's even more so. So I love the tension that it represents and the fact that, yes, at first it's great to – it's great to rah-rah against the sale, but when push comes to shove, like, you've got bills to pay. You might want to start a family. You might want to buy a house. Like, there's all these things that you want to do, these these uh, these benchmarks, and this is an opportunity for them to do it. And obviously, uh, some of them see that. And I think it's it's important to really consider that in terms of all of these characters because – Yes, they are all engineers, and they are kind of the chorus of the show in so many ways. But I, I appreciate the fact that that they do have their own individual perspectives beyond just being drones for mutiny. Yeah, I like that too. And it really tests the limits of, of Cameron's sincerity when she says, it's not my group, it's all of our group, uh, when she makes a decision more or less for them, even if she does kind of – have them drinking the Kool-Aid with her speech and going for it in the moment later on when they truly see the contract terms and what that would have meant for 
their own take-home income, the business itself, all these other things, then the mood begins to change and they realize, hey, maybe we really didn't have a say in this because we didn't even really know the terms explicitly. And Joe hasn't given up either because he goes to Bosworth, tempting him with an offer to join the West Group team as the salesperson for Mutiny if they were to be able to buy the company. And weirdly, I, I thought this was kind of a weird thing for Bosworth to do is tell Joe that, hey, I'm loyal to Cameron, but there is someone you should talk to if you want to get somewhere with this. I thought that was kind of strange that Bosworth kind of gave him that that tip off. Maybe it was the way that Cameron handled the sale that made him decide to to kind of steer him in the direction that Joe eventually goes. Or maybe he sees an opening to both be loyal to Cameron, but also make uh, some money. But interesting that that Bosworth would do this, I think. I agree. I think it's it's Boz kind of trying to have it both ways to an extent. And like they don't really feel Boz. Boz seems to have a better understanding of the contract, so maybe it's one of those things where he sees the written deal and he sees that there are some advantages for the company, and that's why he's kind of he's kind of trying to to play it off a little bit. And I actually like the fact that Boz is not just to- totally loyal to Cameron. Like I like the fact that yes, he he has a a very surrogate daughter relationship with her. But on the other hand, he's maybe he's also looking out for her best interest with this with this deal as well. I think that could also be a part of it as well. So I think there are a lot of interpretations that you can have uh, with this character, and I, I really like that. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Maybe he's trying to save Cameron from herself. As we know with Donna and stuff, she has a, a tough time seeing the whole picture when she is trying to be artistic and try to just keep things online and it's all the other peripheral stuff that she isn't taking into full consideration. And maybe it would be nice if Bosworth and Donna could help out more, but also wouldn't it be nice to have money and then you could really start doing all the stuff you want, not have to worry about all those other things, you know, lots of things to consider there. I mean, and I think that's also, you know, that is how parents in the best way do see their children that, Yes, they love them, but sometimes parents can save kids from themselves, and that goes from when they're two until they're 62 or however long you live. I mean, that's that's what being a good parent is. Yeah, I think really if Joe wasn't even in this, like it wouldn't even be a question. She probably would have made the sale. Yeah. But what Joe does is he somehow gets whatever the numbers were from the acquisition in front of Tom's mother's eyes. And this gets Tom to come to Joe and Joe Jedi mind tricks him into getting Cameron to reconsider. And the programmers convince her to take a vote on the sale. A lot of them are voting to sell. Bosworth sticks with Cameron and she asks Tom what he wants to do. And he's saved by a phone call that unfortunately Lav is in the hospital because it turns out the person he was communicating with not community was actually a group of people catfishing him. And they beat him up to the point where he had to be hospitalized. And at the hospital, Tom is talking to Cameron about how her mom had been laid off two weeks ago and that the last thing that he wanted was from her to think that whatever his vote was going to be was just solely based on monetary purpose. But he says both working for Mutiny and Cameron mean a lot to him and he hoped they can both go on for a long time. And this conversation as Cameron realized that the company truly isn't hers, that it's everybody's and that she's going to call Joe. And we don't see that phone call with Joe, but we do see her, him and Jacob celebrating. And this is when the big problem comes because he thinks they should abandon the gaming aspect of it as CES, the consumer electronics show, still a big thing today is going to happen. And there's this little thing called Nintendo that Jacob predicts is going to do pretty well and thinks that if you take the gaming focus away from the computer and just go on community, 
that should be the sole focus. And Joe is not happy to hear this because a lot of what he pitched to Cameron was this promise was that games are still going to be part of this, yada, yada, and that would all end up being a lie. So he goes to the hospital, finds Cameron and says, don't sell. Try to make it on your own. It should be totally dependent on her and that he's decided to remove himself from the equation entirely. Joe also then tells Sarah he's leaving West Group. And Sarah says she wants to get married to him today and for them to move to California within two weeks, which he says he agrees to. Whatever. I mean, this this Cameron and Joe stuff really here is like, I'm, we should buy Mutiny. And then she says no. And then he pl- makes this play to have them uh, reconsider, and she does. Now she's coming to him and saying, hey, don't sell. He's going to mess with your vision. And it's a lot of head games with Cameron sort of unintentionally, but – you know, it's it, it's got to be tough for her to go through all these different stupid emotions. And it's really Joe who's still pulling the puppet strings. The most accurate thing you said is that emotions are stupid and they are. And I think that I think Karen and Joe very clearly still have feelings for each other. And that is another layer that gets added on to this. There's so much in what you said that 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 I really liked. I like the fact that Jacob is right about Nintendo being a big thing and the community should be the focus. Like he's actually right. Like trying to compete with Nintendo at this point when you're not a major company would be a really stupid idea, but doing something like community where people are connecting online, that's a really good idea. And I think we've seen that for better and for worse with social media in 2021. I also think uh, the, the laugh stuff is unfortunate, but the thing that I really appreciate about this show, and this actually comes up in a later episode, and I'm going to come back to this idea, but sometimes with a show, it can sometimes feel like there is no world outside of the show, if that makes sense. Like that everything that is happening in this world is only happening in what we see on screen. But I love the fact that there is the world is happening around these characters. Like Nintendo is happening. Lav is beaten up, but we don't really see Lav get beaten up. It it is something that happens. And there are tertiary characters that have their own journeys, as again, I'm going to bring up this example when I come back to it. So that is also something that I really like, that even though Halting Catch Fire, this is that they are focusing on these characters, things are happening outside of it that these characters cannot control. What makes it more fun for us is we're watching it with hindsight. We know Nintendo is going to be this major success. We know that communication through the internet is going to be, well, in in our time, a necessity. But it, it, even before that, just such a great tool to connect with so many people. So it's really fun to see them having to use foresight, knowing that Jacob's correct and seeing the value in that versus the games and knowing Nintendo is going to be a success. So, yeah, so much of that aspect makes it so much so interesting to watch here. And what I also really like is how the episode ends with Cameron just saying to everybody, it's my company and I'm not selling it. Part of me found that to be really refreshing because it's like we all knew that, but someone just had to come out and say it. And I'm glad it ended up being her and not somebody else. Yeah, I think it's a really important moment for Cameron. And it's um, just the fact that she comes to that realization, I think, is going to inform what happens the rest of this season and even going into season three. I also love the fact that you use the term catfishing, and catfishing is such a ubiquitous term. Fifteen years ago, we didn't even th- that was not that did not exist, but because of this documentary called Catfish, it is a term that we just use 
now. And a lot of that is also related to being on the internet and being connected online. It's just, it's really fascinating to me that we have this word that is, that is used because of a documentary that became an MTV, like television series. And it's just, it has just crossed the threshold. I don't even know how many people have seen the documentary and even understand like where that term comes from. I haven't. I thought it was just from the MTV show, so that's hilarious. And then there's no. The, uh, I remember that the, there was. I forget. I was listening to a podcast, and they they made reference to what catfish was, and it was like a big deal for me to hear about like this story. And then watching the documentary and watching it unfold, it was like a like a horror movie, and that it just I don't know, like how it just crossed over into just being this ubiquitous. Yeah, I don't know either. Episode 8, Limbo. So Donna's not happy that Cameron ultimately didn't sell, and she basically tells her, too bad, so sad. Bosworth has some plans about options for moving off of West Group servers, but in the meantime, they're having a barbecue for their mutiny users as a thank you, which I think is really cool. And during an argument about not selling because Joe told her to, Tom tells Cameron that he loves her. Aw. Lav is back. He's on crutches, but he's in good spirits. And a, and a mutiny user gives Cameron this really heartfelt thank you for providing her a place to escape via community. And this is really when Cameron sees the bigger picture of community, and that's when she apologizes to Donna for not seeing that bigger picture. And she even has some ideas on how to make it better. And in the midst of all this, uh, Bosworth's son James shows up and offers him what he calls honest work. But Bosworth uh, decides to stay with mutiny in the moment. So that's an interesting role reversal to me is it's usually the father telling the son or daughter, whoever, like, all right, time to grow up and get honest work here. Now it's a son kind of seeing everything that his dad's involved with and being like, all right, maybe it's time for you to get a real job now. So one of the things that I want to point out is that time moves much faster on this show than Breaking Bad. With Breaking Bad, it feels like every episode is like a day with these shows, like with, with halt and catch fire. There's sometimes weeks, months pass between episodes. So it might like, it might seem like Boz is just going, kind of going back and forth day after day. But the reality is, is that, you know, he is spending time doing this thing weeks, months, and then kind of doing something else for weeks and months. So I think that's worth pointing out that this isn't just Boz just kind of being very manic and just kind of going back and forth. That, there's a there's a good there's a good reason for that. I mentioned earlier this idea of an outside world and Gretchen, the user, coming up to Cameron and giving that heartfelt thank you. Like again, we're not going to see Gretchen anymore. It's just this really one-off moment. But I found it to be really touching. I found it to be just a really important moment for the show to just give this character like some agency. And to just show like the value of a community. And even though social media can be horrible and it can suck, there is also so many opportunities that are presented for someone like Gretchen. Like Gretchen, whatever her issues were, like she was able to get help because of community. And I know it's kind of a throwaway moment and it doesn't really mean anything for the plot but i think that that's what separates the show from so many others that they give these characters these moments and it kind of makes me wish they gave sarah the uh, sarah a moment like this too isn't that really saying something like she's in one scene 
she gives this one thank you to Cameron and you're like, and everything she's done is more emotionally moving than anything Sarah gets to do in the entire series. Yeah. It's really strange. Like it's a really strange feeling. Like you're feeling like all this emotion swell up in you. And it's like, I don't, I don't feel this at all for Sarah. (laughs) No, never, not at all. And uh, speaking of Sarah and the people in her life, I, I feel like I have to point this out. When when wrestling fans hear the phrase best of luck in your future endeavors, it hits a little differently because that's been the tagline for any time WWE publicly fires one of their wrestlers. They'll always do a press release saying, you know, we've come to the terms on the release of so and so. We wish them best of luck in their future endeavors. Uh, so can I broaden this the scope of this? Please. It's that it's not just a wrestling thing, but when I read that statement, it comes off very corporate speaky. And it comes off like it comes off very cold. Like when you say the best in your future endeavor, it's like, what the hell does that even mean? It just comes off very cold and corporate. And I think that's why it has become a punchline for that reason. And if I ever with someone the best of luck in their future endeavors, what I'm really saying is fuck you. Like that's that is what it comes down to, because I have done it before with that intention. And that is because it is just a very cold hearted statement it's it's the same thing like when the nfl or any of these sports league they cancel a game because because of covid and they use terms like over an abundance of caution like Uh these are these are phrases that don't mean anything but we try to attach like all this meaning to them and they really don't but uh jacob invented this phrase i believe in 1985 and john laurinitis took it and ran that's right. Well, it's also interesting when, when someone gets fired and they don't use it. They just say they've come to terms with their release. And you're like, oh, man, they must have done something real bad. They don't even wish them luck in their future endeavors. Oh, yeah, it's 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 pretty great. It's uh, pretty but yes, great. Jacob, Jacob hits Joe with the old best of luck in your future endeavors when Joe informs him that he's leaving for California and leaving the company. And Joe is tasked to prep his successor, Jesse Evans, who is played by Skylar Aston. I'm not even embarrassed to admit that I know Skylar Aston strictly from Pitch Perfect. That's a damn good movie. There I said it. Uh, but I was I was not expecting him in the show whatsoever. Uh, great casting. Jesse Evans is a terrible character. Like the best word that I can use is he's just he's just the most annoying human being in the world. And that is a testament to Skylar Austin, to Skylar Aston's skills as an actor, that he is just so annoying. He probably has 20 minutes of screen time in these three episodes. And I just want to punch him in the face. And I think that is the desired reaction. That's, that's a good thing when I say that. Oh yeah. Like he shows up and like, he doesn't even say anything and you're just like your whole vibe. Don't like it. Get off my screen. I don't like it. It's like when I see Ted Cruz, I just want to punch him in the face. I thought you were going to say that's what you feel like when you see me, and I'm really glad you didn't because that would have hurt my feelings. No, Kevin. I see you, and I just want to give you a big hug. Oh, that's so sweet. Except for not now. Maybe that's an evil thing now. Don't no. hug me. <laughs> uh, we'll do the elbow. We'll do the elbow bop. <laughs> or or a very far away off hand waver. Or, or uh, a salute. Yeah, yes. Uh, we could do the Nation of Domination fist raise to each other. <laughs> yeah, let's not. So Joe has to prep his successor, but he doesn't know, like, the, the nook and crannies of everything. So Gordon comes by to drop off some notes for Joe to give to Jesse and they kind of say their goodbyes. And then we see later Joe and Sarah take ecstasy before going out to a nightclub as sort of a last hurrah to Dallas. Joe's has this like talking about the physical world being dead and he would be sort of right just later on. Uh, they fuck in the mainframe room later. And while he's there, he sees Jesse celebrating the creation of Westnet which is a total ripoff of Mutiny 
And we see that Jesse has also locked out Mutiny's programmers from their own system. Joe immediately heads off to Mutiny headquarters to tell Cameron that he had nothing to do with Westnet or any of this locking out business. And, of course, she nor does anybody else believe him. So weird stuff with the ecstasy and the nightclub and they're making out and all this stuff. But it all really just gets us to this point of uh, this Westnet copycat of Mutiny and all that sort of business. I mean, it just it came off a little bit contrived to me. And I think that's overall the main issue that I had. With the scene, I, I think it's interesting that they did have them take drugs. And so there's a point when they're in the club and they're dancing and then they start making out with this couple. And it's like, are they are they going to have an orgy or something? And then they just leave. And it's a really strange moment. And then they're then they have sex in the mainframe room. And then, of course, Joe just happens to see uh, them having the champagne celebration. I don't know how he got out of there. Did they show how he got out? No, I think you're. They probably didn't have an exit strategy, so the exit strategy was just cut to the next scene. <laughs> I want to see Joe like running into a janitor on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> yep that uh, that that was probably uh, interesting. Yeah, I think that's one of those situations. Just smash cutting to something else and just not addressing it is for the best because otherwise it could get a little awkward. Yeah, and, and like, you know, I know it's the 80s, so they want to show you, like, the XC and the nightclub life. But one thing I kind of like about Hall and Kitch Fire is, like, it doesn't overburden you with, like, pop culture references or, like, hey, we're in the 80s. Isn't that kooky that some other shows can do? And then so just have this, like, nightclub scene where it's supposed to be very, like, overtly 80s did seem out of place. Yeah, this is this is a show that I think sometimes they're they're trying too hard to be like a prestige, maybe even an HBO show. I think season two definitely has less of those moments than season one, but they're still there. I think you're going to really see like I think season two is much better than season one. I think season three is when the show really escalates into kind of the pantheon of truly great shows of the decade. Um, But yeah, there's still there's still some cluckiness in season two. Well, then we get to what's going on with Gordon and Donna, and Gordon's guilt about cheating on Donna with Jules is really getting to him. The business, at least, is going well. Uh, Stan comes back again, and he has lunch with Gordon's co-workers. Gordon stays behind to continue working. And when the co-workers come back from lunch, they both quit. They tell Gordon they feel they're too old to get into a risky business venture, so now Gordon is on his own. But then later he sees an ad for another Dallas-based custom PC business in a magazine – And Gordon immediately believes that Stan stole his idea. Gordon quickly vents to Donna at the mutiny barbecue, then leaves to go to Stan's house, breaking into his home, looking for evidence of his thievery. And not only did Stan not steal his idea, but he learns that Donna had planted the seed in the guy's head to keep an eye on him, which made them nervous about getting into business with him as he thinks, you know, maybe he's back on coke or whatever else. And. Gordon gets like semi crazed thinking about Donna sabotaging him. And unfortunately for Gordon, rightfully Stan had called the cops when he realized someone was breaking and entering his home. This is when they show up and they arrive and arrest him. And Gordon's kind of thinking, how could Donna do this to me? And the, and the police ride over Gordon is losing it. Yeah, that much is obvious. And uh, it's going to continue in the next episode. Gordon is not doing very well. He is having a, a meltdown of sorts. And I think some of it is justified and some of it isn't. I think 
So, you know, there's there's some paranoia there. And I think the problem is that he and Donna are not communicating very well. And I think some of this is on Donna as well, that Gordon doesn't even know about the abortion. And, like, that's something, again, that's kind of hanging over uh, the show. Like, Donna's also hiding things from him. But on the one hand, she's, like, getting involved with his uh, custom PC business. And he also does mess up one of the PCs that gets returned so I think that's also worth pointing out that he is he's just having a lot of difficulties and it is only going to continue in the next episode. Episode nine, Kevin, the great Kali. That's what it's called, right? It's Kali or Kali. Uh, but yes, it definitely brings up images of the wonderful former world heavyweight champion in my head. It's a Linux thing. I don't know exactly how it's pronounced, though. But now we have Cameron and Donna discussing what legal options they have against West Group. And they're at a shooting range to unload some of their tension. I guess Cameron doesn't necessarily need sex to relieve tension now that Tom is in her life. So a shooting range it is. But her idea is to shop around their latest game, Extract and Defend, to both computer and home console markets in order to get some money. Tom doesn't agree with the choice, but she gets a meeting at this company called Funtime and Bosworth has like this separate pitch meeting with some other people at Funtime to acquire Mutiny, I think. But they do end up selling the game to them for $50,000. And Bosworth tells Cameron that he's going to leave Mutiny to accept steadier work with his son. And she also learns that Tom was the one who set up the meeting with Funtime, despite him not being involved in the decision to sell and being against it. And she tries to stop Tom from leaving Mutiny, but his decision is made up. So in one day, Cameron has lost Tom as both her boyfriend and as a co-worker and lost Bosworth. So one success was selling the game and then another on losing two people who are both important to her business and her life. Uh, another great Bosworth scene as well. I just – I love the way that Bosworth just reads the room very subtly. We see him and he identifies basically who the real people are that they should be pitching to. And it's uh, it's great. I think we Boz is just at his best here. Fifty thousand dollars seems kind of low for the game. I guess it's good because they're happy with it and they get to make payroll. But I don't know. I, I guess in twenty twenty one, it would uh, a game like that would probably go for uh, a significantly higher amount of money. I also love that Boz kind of sees the writing on the wall and decides uh, to leave. And I understand why. I don't think he, he – it's not that he dislikes Cameron, doesn't trust her, but it's just like he understands that there are only – there's only so much time that he has left as a, as a 55-year-old man and that he has to try to make money for, for his family. And uh, he's not going to resort to making meth in his garage or in his, uh, in his RV, so he's got he's to go out there and, and hustle for work, so – uh, I just I, I really appreciated this, and I love that Tom and Ki- that the Tom and Cameron are kindred spirits, and like because of what Cameron did, that's why Tom felt like he had to leave Mutiny. And you could see like if the roles were reversed, and Tom was in charge, and Cameron uh, was in the junior position, like she would probably leave too. But Cameron, whenever you're the boss, like you have to make different choices. Exactly. It puts her in a really tough spot with Mutiny at the end of this season. And it's more growing pains with a startup company. And I think that's the reality is you're going to get people who can stay have their they have the ability to stay on for whatever reason. I mean, I have to imagine a lot of these people are really young and either living at home or in a situation where they're living with 
six or seven people in a frat house situation so they can afford a, a pay cut or what have you or, or missing a few paychecks to have their situation. Doesn't really seem like with Tom and his mom being out of work that he can really afford to do that. And Bosworth, I mean, he, he might just be uh, Murtaugh and be too old for this shit. Certainly. And there's a, there's a Lethal Weapon article written by Mike Thomas on EnterTheRealWorld.com. That's right. And so we get a, a, another good scene with Donna. She's meeting with Jesse, and Jesse is not afraid of mutiny exposing uh, West Group for stealing their idea and says that, oh, if you say anything, it'll just be seen as sour grapes, blah, blah, blah. But what the meeting does is make Donna think that perhaps Joe was being truthful when he said he wasn't involved in the situation at all. I mean, just just great slimy work from Jesse here. If Donna had punched Jesse in the face, would you have just decided that's the greatest moment in the show and stopped watching? It would have been a really cathartic moment, if if nothing else. That probably way. wouldn't have been a smart thing to do, but Jesse gets his comeuppance later, and it's great. So Joe is the one who gives Gordon a ride home from jail. Probably a smart call doing that instead of Donna at this point. And Gordon pursues the copycat business and finds out that they are now out of business. Unfortunately for Gordon, he can't find his car in the garage. And this is not like in a charming, fun way like the Seinfeld episode where they get lost in the parking garage. This is in a very bad, uh-oh, my brain isn't working way. Uh, and he also falls down a set of stairs, which injures his leg. And he has to like use his arms to pull himself up a flight of stairs and find a garage assistant to help him. And they end up calling him uh, some EMTs. And at least he's able to find his car in the garage when he's getting stretchered out. And he actually breaks down crying in the ambulance en route to the hospital, which I have to imagine is a result of his brain injuries or a concussion or something of the like. But the doctor tells Donna that Gordon's episode was psychological and not related to his condition. And Gordon admits to Donna that he knows he needs help. This is sad to watch Gordon in this condition. Like this is just his his body failing him, his brain failing him. Just not – no positives, no fun things with Gordon in this episode here. I guess – Aside from seeing that the other business failed so he can stop before he gets ahead of himself, but really tough to watch Gordon here in episode nine. Yeah, it was uh, it was really depressing and very hard to watch. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about the parallels with Walter White and this has the complete opposite energy of Walter White in the parking garage telling his wife that he won for sure. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a good that's that's a good point. Didn't make um, that connection, but I can see it now. Because the thing about Gordon is, like, Gordon is not a perfect person, but they write him in just such a way where you're still able to feel sympathy for him. And I think that's really important because this – it almost could have become – I think it's still – it almost is co- comedic in a way, very darkly comedic. But I think it just crosses the line into full tragedy when he, when he does fall and injure himself. And I think that's when it becomes much more serious. And you literally see him crawling. And what a great moment when you see him, when he finally sees his car as he's being stretched out. Like, just the ultimate fuck you. Like, just unbelievably <laughs> well executed. And I also love that after he bought this really nice car at the end of season one, he is just driving the shittiest car in the world. Yep. And see, that was funny to me when he sees his car and he's like, oh, there's my car. That That's a good payoff. That's no, the dark I, humor. I, that, is, that is dark humor. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so Jacob says goodbye to Joe and Sarah. Joe and Jacob have this tete-a-tete about Westnet that ends on poor terms. And Joe attends the keynote address of West Group, which introduces Westnet to everybody. And Cameron shows up to watch. 
she tells Joe that she didn't want to leave without telling him uh, that she knows that he didn't steal their program. And of course, they also end up smooching. Joe stops her and is especially perturbed when Joe says, you know, hey, I can't. And she says, you're Joe McMillan. You can do whatever you want. And Cameron apologizes for saying that and leaves for him another floppy disk. Uh, so that's bad news. Joe and Cameron should not be smooching. Joe's a married man. Cameron's obviously uh, not in great headspace with – I think she's still with Tom at this point. And I think Tom leaves at the end of the episode. So bad stuff. These two seem like they should not be together at all. Oh, uh, no. So what happens is at the keynote address, Joe gives full credit to Cameron for for creating what is to become Westnet. And Jacob, Jesse and Sarah are not happy about this. And he pops in the disc. And what unbeknownst to him is on the disc is Sonaris, the program that totally disrupted mutiny and now is disrupting West End live during this keynote address. And it uh, is going to cost them a lot of business. That's for sure. And at home, Sarah thinks Joe did this on purpose, believes he did it for Cameron, and that obviously does not sit well with her. And that's how we end episode nine. Uh, That was a pretty great moment to see West Note crumble in front of everybody's eyes. Uh, It's pretty glorious. Cameron with uh, some – so I'm going to make a reference that Kevin doesn't understand, then I'm going to explain it. Uh, So she was carrying some Elena Tyrell energy, and Elena Tyrell, of course, is from Game of Thrones – And she has one of the most savage scenes in the entire show. So there's this point uh, when Joffrey is killed in season four. And then four seasons later, she admits to it. And she has this great quote. She says, tell Cersei I want her to know it was me. That's the kind of energy that Cameron brought to the scene. Even though she doesn't admit it was her, it was was very clear and it was glorious. And I love that, that Cameron did this. Like, it's... It's great because, like, they deserved it, and she deserves to manipulate Joe for her reasons, just like he has manipulated her for his reasons. So it's a great moment for Cameron. And look, nobody ever has a reason to believe Joe. Joe is constantly lying, manipulating. So this is karma. This is this is payback for all of the things that he has done to Sarah, all the things he's done to Jacob, to Cameron. So I can't I can't feel any sympathy for Joe in this moment, because all he is doing is he's just behaving like himself. I mean, just the fact that he gets to give a keynote address, like why would he, why should he be able to do that? Like Joe at the end of the season, like he's just a mediocre white dude. And this is confirmed in the next episode when he gets $10 million to start uh, uh, his own company. And I mean, that's Joe in a nutshell. Like he is constantly just, able to worm his way into these various opportunities. And a moment like this is really good because you realize that he kind of deserves what he gets. You know, it's also hard for me to feel bad for him because I think he's happy this happens. I think he loves that Westnet is being taken down in front of his very eyes. I mean, it's it's horrifying for him in the moment, but I think he's secretly all too thrilled this is happening and appreciates the gumption of Cameron in doing so. Yup. So our 10th and final episode, Heaven is a Place. This Westnet stunt cost Jacob his role as CEO, and Joe is signing divorce papers per Sarah's request. So that's all that. That's that's uh, all she wrote for Sarah. We go through all the stages of her in the show, as we mentioned. And he pulls a Walter Rife briefly when he's driving with his eyes closed and his hands off of the wheel. 
We also see that he himself has a meeting with the uh, the sexist investor all the way back from episode two. This is their return. And they're no more kind to him, calling him straight up a psychopath to his face. So I guess it's it's good that they're just not awful to women. I mean, they're awful to everyone, which I don't know if that's I mean, I guess that's worse because they're just awful people. Yeah, they are really awful people, but I mean, they're investors. What do you what do you expect from them? Morals, ethics? I mean, that doesn't exist in capitalism, Kevin. It really doesn't. Joe goes to the Clark house to give Gordon a chip from the IBM computer that they uh, reverse engineered that he says he's kept as a motivational tool. He wants Gordon to have it. Later, Gordon provides Joe this program called Tabula Rasa, which he said should fix all the damage Joe did with Sonaris and inoculate them from any future infections. And he tells Joe he should do it for Sarah, if nothing else, and how important it is to hold on to someone who makes everything all worth it. And there's a key thing that happens before he says this that makes it important, but Gordon right now does not know that Joe and her got divorced, so it's definitely very awkward. But it's more for Gordon in his own head than it is for Joe when he says that. So did the capital company say they did not want the vaccine because they're concerned that Bill Gates is going to be tracking them? Or is that how it works? No, I mean, we are talking about microchips here technically, but this is not how it works at all. Okay. Uh, I couldn't help but think about all the conversation about vaccines and then sitting down to watch this episode. I mean, you can't help but just think about like when Joe's talking about it, inoculations and for the future and all that jazz. Well, that that comes later when he goes back to the investor. But yes, I thought the exact same thing, too. So Cameron is one of the ideas she had of her community that she introduced here is a visual component where you can kind of create your own caricature. It's crazy to watch this because it's so ahead of its time uh, back here in 1985. But she also found a classified ad for this IBM 3033 mainframe in California that she wants to buy so they can host their network on it. And that would make them fully dependent on themselves. She's also missing Tom. Awe. And then she proposes to Donna, who just went through this fight with Gordon, more on that later, that they should relocate to California, saying it could be a fresh start for the both of them. So obviously we need more context for that, but this sets up what's going to happen with Gordon and Donna a little bit later. The some, Something that they have that they can hang their hat on for some future hope. Basically, season two was a reset from season one in that season one, it was about Gordon going for his creativity and Donna was kind of managing things and being the stable force season two it Gordon is the stable force allegedly it's not working out very well and Donna's the one that's kind of pursuing her creativity what they're trying to do at the end of season two is to basically Donna is the one that smartly says you know this isn't going to work we both have to work together in order for this to work. I think that is a logical conclusion based off of everything uh, that has gone on. And I think that's that's the most compelling part about their marriage is that it feels like a true partnership. It does, it does not feel like one person is better than the other, even though I think at times we are meant to be more sympathetic to Donna than Gordon. But in a way, I think we are supposed to still feel some sympathy for Gordon. And I think this gets magnified by the fact that uh, their daughter, Joni, has an outburst at breakfast. And, you know, the first thing that Gordon says when Joni runs away is that it's not because of his condition that this happened. And, you know, whatever issues that they are having kind of got put by the wayside as they try to find their daughter. And then they talk to their daughter together. And again, they kind of put things to the side so that they can have 
this conversation. And that's when Donna, you know, talks about fixing the marriage and moving to California, purchasing the mainframe, uh, fixing it up for mutiny's sake, and then working together. And again, I love that every season of the show has a different feeling to it that, you know, the first season, it was very much about Gordon and Joe Cameron was there, but Donna was very much off to the side. In this case, Joe was the one that was off to the side, but you had a lot of Donna and Cameron together with Gordon kind of playing the Donna role. And now in season three, you've got a, you're going to have a whole new dichotomy because you're going to have three of these characters working together, but all four are still going to be in California. And that is, uh, that's a really great thing to see. I love that this show is willing to go in different places, leave different spaces. I mean, Southern California is still probably going to look like downtown Atlanta, Georgia, but I love the fact that they are constantly willing to just shake things up and shake up the dichotomy of the show because it really it freshens things up. It really does. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get a whole change of scenery with moving from Texas to California. But I do also like they didn't just start in California, that there was a means to get there and a reason to go there. And yeah, I like that Donna finds out about the fight with his brother through their daughter. And then they have this conversation and uh, this fight about honesty and all this stuff. And this is when Gordon finally tells her about having the affair. And but but again, I think his reasoning for saying, like, you know, I did it because she wasn't there for them is all very real. It doesn't make him right. It doesn't make what he did less bad. It doesn't make it sting any less, but it's a reason why he did it, and I think it's valid. And yes, it hurts their daughter who runs away, uh, and it's Joni, the other daughter, who's also having some uh, like this outburst at breakfast and being disrespectful. So you have a little bit of something with each daughter in this season. We've seen Joe and his marriage fall apart. You've seen Cameron and her relationship with Tom fall apart. Bosworth is on his own, and there you have this last relationship that Don is trying to mend. And I do like that she lays out these terms about moving to California, all that stuff. I love that she says, I don't want to be the wife that leaves her husband when he's sick, but that doesn't mean I won't be. And then ending it saying that I don't know if this is going to work for certain, but it's the best solution I have. And I know if we stay here, we're not going to make it. So she has control. And it's not so much a way out, but it is a solution, and Gordon wants to make it work, and that's why he decides to go with it, and that's why they do end up in California. But like you said, the thing that really sticks to them is that Gordon's worried about his idea being stolen for the computer, and it turns out for him it's Joe who steals the idea by taking Tabula Rasa and turning it into an antivirus software pitch meeting to start in California – so they're on this plane to leave to go to California. He sees in this magazine, Joe stole his idea. He has $10 million in venture capital money, and he's going to be there in California when they land. When all of Mutiny lands, Joe's going to be there waiting for them. And it's just such like this really interesting, cool way to wrap up the season where they want to not be entangled with Joe anymore and who can blame them. And yet that son of a bitch is still going to be there in California when they're trying to move on. Yeah, and Gordon and Joe were in a very good place throughout the season. And then, of course, they have to twist the knife, 
knife at the end and basically create more tension between Gordon and Joe. Yeah, Joe is not a good person and just run away from this son of a bitch. I mean, that's what you got to do. Just move away from this man as quickly as possible. He is very toxic and not good for anyone. That is that is uh, that is my advice. And yeah, the the moments on the plane are uh, are really excellent and I, uh, I asked you if you had another fist pumping moment and you uh, you said you did. And it's the moment when Boz uh, comes onto the plane. And I feel like when they were deciding on his cowboy hat, I feel like they maybe started small and they're like bigger. And then they bring in another hat. And they say bigger. And then they brought in another one and said still bigger. They brought the biggest one they had and they're like, all right, we want one that's bigger, but this will do. He has to get it on the plane. He is wearing the biggest cowboy hat I've ever seen in my life. It's classic Bosworth, and I think the the adulation that he receives from Mutiny is the same adulation we as the audience had because, you know, you see like a brief scene here where he's with his son and talking to some suits, and he realizes maybe Mutiny is where he needs to be, and he goes back and he gets on the plane with them, but Tom doesn't. Cameron presents him with a plane ticket and says she wants him to come with them to California, but the plane closes and... Tom, don't make it. And I kind of like that. I think that's that's real. That's realistic, too. Is that what, sometime- if, what if Tom was mad that it was a United and he was an American Airlines? Member? <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. Uh, but it was a free plane ticket. It shouldn't matter. I mean, it's the 80s. So I think they just let you on the plane. They didn't even like have security. But it would have been funny if Tom was at security and that's why he couldn't get on. <laughs> They're still patting him <laughs> down on all that stuff. <laughs> Uh, they find drugs on him. Yeah, they find but, uh, they find marijuana on him. <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. Not everything can end happy. So I I thought it was. I mean, Tom just can't uproot his life. He's got his mom to take care of and all this stuff. So like, as much as he may have wanted to get on that plane and go to California and how pie in the sky and fun that would be, just can't do it. And and the last thing you know, the we talked about this is that the abortion's still the secret in the air. So Donna can talk about open and honesty and all this stuff and Gordon. Drops the big thing about the affair and even tells her on the plane that I think we can be happy again. And she gets all emotional about this. Oh, because he mentions the possibility of having a kid, you know, having a third kid. And that's when Donna gets emotional because she had that abortion. And it's uh, still this lingering thing in the air that she's uh, holding on to as a secret from Gordon. So all that's very interesting. And the one thing I will say about Joe is that looking back, the one thing I like about his character is that you say you never thought he was sincere. And I think that was kind of the point because there were moments where I genuinely think Joe was trying to change. I think he went back to someone from his school days to be with because it was a reminder that he could be good again. And I think that there was things he was trying to do in earnest to be better. But if, if you're, if you're Joe and you have All these people in your life, your wife, your father-in-law, Donna, Cameron, everyone telling you they don't believe you when you're trying to be earnest. Maybe you just say F it and you and you be that Joe that you've been trying to run away from. But you just embrace that full, you know, full bore, you know, and maybe it's that he couldn't escape that no matter what. But what does that do to a person when you feel like you're change, you want to change and you're trying to change and nobody believes you? What does that do to someone mentally? That's the one thing about it that I did like. You become Saul Goodman or you break bad. That's what happens because I think this is kind of the lesson that we should take from a lot of of, of prestige television. Like, can people really change? And in this case with Joe, I think the argument that they're making is basically that one uh, cannot change. And I don't know if I agree or disagree with that, but 
it's definitely handled much differently than in those previous two scenarios. But uh, we do see that Joe kind of ends up in the same place where he was almost at the uh, the beginning of season one. Yeah, but, you know, here his plan is going into motion. You know, he said he was going to take his money from the buyout to move to California and start something new. And he gets his money a different way. He sabotages a, an old friend of his who doesn't agree to be his partner. He has that money, and now here he is in the Bay Area ready to start. So everything he wanted to happen comes true. It just comes in a different way, and he uh, doesn't have a wife, girlfriend, whatever anymore. He has nobody to love, Kevin. Nobody to love. Nobody has anybody to love except for Donna and Gordon, we can hope. And that's and Boz in his cowboy hat. And Boz in his cowboy hat. Overall thoughts on season two. I think season two is better than season one. I still think that there is some clunkiness that gets that gets rectified more so in season three. But I really appreciated all of the storylines. And even if the Joe storyline did not work totally, I still think that he has some genuinely interesting moments with all of the main characters. I love the addition of Tom. I think he added a lot of nuance to Cameron's character. I really like some of the one-offs that they brought in. Again, James Cromwell, I mentioned at the beginning, just to reemphasize, I think he did a really good job as Jacob Wheeler. Even if the storyline wasn't my favorite, I think James Cromwell did a fantastic job uh, with this. And I know that we were very hard on the Sarah character, and I think it is a show problem more so than an actor problem, if that makes sense. And I just think if they were going to have the Sarah character, I wish that that she was a stronger personality. Not And there's there's different ways to do it. She did not have to be Cameron or Donna, who I think are strong personalities in their own ways. But I wish that they had found a way to do that instead of making her what I think is a very typical prestige wife. And uh, it just sucks that the Sarah character didn't work. Because if the Sarah-Joe relationship works, then I think this is just about a perfect season. I think there was a point in the season where like I looked back and I was like, I really don't feel like there's much happening. Like there wasn't enough change. But then once you get to the end and you kind of look back, you're like, oh, man, a lot happened here. So the, the it almost feels like that in the end of season one where it feels like they kind of warp speed towards the end of the season a little bit. But I will say the pacing does feel much better. And overall, it is a much better show i'm glad they got out of the corporate environment in season one and into something like this i think this is more fun to watch i think you get a lot more to do with the characters and i feel like they maybe didn't dig as deep with some of joe as they could have and the but i say that and not feeling like there was anything more i wanted to see Boz is the one I would have loved to have seen more of, and I hope that we get to see more of him here. But it's understandable why he takes sort of a backseat here in season two. And I think they did a really great job of balancing Donna and Gordon in the season, both their personal and their professional lives. And you see a lot more of them separate than together in this season, obviously purposefully, which is a big change from season one as well. And so – that just goes to show how how far these characters have come. And that's really what it comes down to in in the show is that the story can have its issues here and there. But really, the characters they've done such a great job with. I'm really interested to see where they go in season three. 
And one other thing I think is interesting to point out is that the episode is called Heaven is a Place, and that's because the song that plays at the end of the episode is Heaven by the Talking Heads, and that's one of the lines of the song. So for them, we leave this episode that or the season that overall is a, a pretty pretty big bummer of a season if you if you think about it. But there's hope. There's hope for them going to California to start fresh, start anew. You know, Joe being there may throw a, a cog in the wrench, but it's a fresh start for him too, even if we're not rooting for him like you are for the mutiny crew. And I'm interested to see what that that freshness looks like. But I say it's interesting because you had the second to last episode, which is more or less a two-parter. You had Psycho Killer by the Talking Heads playing, and here we end with another Talking Heads song. Both great songs in their own right, too. And uh, Heaven is on Fear of Music, which is another great album. But just wanted to mention that. Thumbs up for season two. I was already looking forward to season three, but what you're saying about it makes me look even more forward to talking about it next month. Yeah, I mean, I think the first season is clunky. I think season two is better. I think seasons three and four are when the show really peaks, because that is when Cantwell and Rogers also take over as showrunners, and I think it becomes their show in a way. And I understand not having them be the showrunners as first-timers, but... I think the show becomes even more of their vision than the first two seasons. And I think it makes a huge, huge difference. And uh, season three goes in some really surprising directions. And I'm really excited to talk about it because, I mean, there's a reason that I reference the daughters and the importance of understanding their differences, because that that is that is going to become important as we go into both season three and four. And uh, that's that's really all I have to say. I think season two is really good. And Kevin, I think we're just destined to do two and a half hour uh, season reviews from this point forward. Like we said before, I think if you're going to be talking about an entire season of a show, that that makes a lot of sense. So uh, I'm I'm not too I'm not too hurt about it. I think we condensed as best we could. We hit all the high points or and the low points. Because trust me, there were some low points here, both emotionally and just uh, writing wise. With you know who by this point. Yep. So I'm on Twitter at KFord13. He's on Twitter at JeromeC1985. I don't have many podcasts on here anymore because everything I'm doing is stuck in limbo. But if you want to go check out my Flubing the Pig archives in January, myself, Justin, and Brad did cover Obsidian, the second episode of Adventure Time Distant Lands. And Jerome and I are just twiddling our thumbs until Better Call Saul Season 6 comes out. We'll, of course, be back next month with Season 3 of this. But I did hear on an interview with, with Ray Seahorn in November that they at least had broken into episodes five or six of 13. So maybe by now they've broken them all or we're getting close to it. So hopefully we'll get better calls all season six sooner than later. Counting on you, Joe Biden. Let's get it done. <laughs> You're counting on Joe Biden to get this done. I, uh, I think this is this is much more Peter Gould and Vince Gilligan's. Uh, if he uh, makes an executive sir. order to get Better Call Saul season six shooting, then we're going to get it. I mean, I guess I, I don't think that's within his jurisdiction. Don't you know how politics work? Kevin, if I knew how politics really worked, I probably would just jump off a ledge. Yeah, that's that sounds about right. What are you doing on this website elsewhere? Uh, you can go listen to Pantheon Plus uh, with Brian and I. Uh, in January, we did Tournament Edition, where we reviewed three martial arts films and The Quick and the Dead. February is Bong Joon-ho month. You should not watch Barking Dogs. Don't bite, everyone. Do not watch that movie under any circumstances. And as we are recording this month, the month of March, 
I don't know what the theme is because Brian and I haven't figured it out. But by the time you listen to this podcast, we will probably have figured out what we are doing for the month of March. Uh, so that is uh, that's all I've got, Kevin, for you. Well, hey, I just want to thank you for joining me again for this conversation and thank everybody for listening to this podcast. We will be back in the month of April to cover season three. Thank you for listening. And remember, heaven is a place where nothing ever happens. Never.